אוקיי, בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה. ברוכים הבאים, very good to see everyone. We are up to שיעור number 91, ברוך השם, of the מוסר פרקי אבות series. Last night שיעור was long, but I think we had some good stuff in there. Some good חידושים. שיעור tonight will also be for רפואה שלמה to לבנה בת שרה, שרה בת לבנה, עובדיה בן לבנה. דוריס בת ג'ורה, דוד בן עשריה, אושרי בן דוריס, אלישבע, חיה בת שרה, שרה לאה בת שרה, דבורה בת מרצדס, מרים בת מזל, חנה בת מרים, יהודה בן דבורה, מנגומי סנדרס, בן אברהם, או עילוי נשמעת, לא רפואה שלמה, רפואה שלמה, that's next week. בעזרת השם, אור עם ישראל will have רפואה שלמה, רפואת הנפש, רפואת הגוף. בעזרת השם, בעזרת השם, If there was ever a time to wake up, this would be it, Alotai. This would be it. Now, Parashat uh, Yitro, which we touched on a little bit last night, it's, uh, like I said, you can start it, live a thousand years, read it all day, all night for those thousand years, and still not finish. How many chidushim, how many secrets, um... How many lessons, life lessons, that you could apply in every part of your life, whether it's because you're a natural-born Jew, a convert, a uh, righteous Gentile, or you're trying to be one of those three, or you're trying to justify your craziness of being a uh, anti-Hashem, and you realize this would be a good wake-up call to stop with the nonsense. Uh, or you're trying to learn about business, or you're trying to learn about law, or you're trying to learn how to correct your bad midot, or you're trying to do tshuva, or you're trying to do kiruv, or you're trying to um, learn about miracles, and on and on and on and on. These are just not even 1% of, one of the, some of the things you can learn from this parasha specifically. Now from the Torah, if we Torah, I could say the things you can learn from the Torah, the world would end seven times and it still wouldn't finish. So, the parasha itself seems like relatively simple. You have Am Yisrael, Avotenu Akdushim, that made an endless amount of mistakes, and we learned yesterday that they're us, and we're them. And we're still making some of the same mistakes, But yet Hashem still loves them. And yet Hashem still wants them. And yet Hashem is still waiting for them to do tshuva. But that time eventually ends. So Dora Dea arrives in Mount Sinai. And we get the Ten Commandments. Each commandment is a story of its own. There are complaints. There are emunah problems. There's conversion. There is all types of things happening in this parasha. 
that uh, even if you don't like Torah, it's still interesting. When you like it, it's a uh, it's mamash ganeden, ganeden. So the uh, Mishnah that we're in always has to connect. Always has to connect. So let's see what the Mishnah says. We're up to Mishnah 5, 7. In this Seder, this Seder, where it says, Asara nisim na'asu la'avotenu bebet ha'mikdash. Ten miracles were performed for our ancestors in the Holy Temple, the Bet HaMikdash, which is many hundreds of years later after this, but so what are these miracles? The Mishnah is going to tell us. as you can see, it's a very long Mishnah, Bezrat Hashem. We will try to complete all of it along with some other interesting things about the parasha. Thank you, Skin. So the Mishnah says, Ten miracles were performed for our ancestors in the Holy Temple. As you remember, Last night we said that sometimes when it says in the Torah, ten things happen, ten this, ten this, it's just a sign that really a lot of things happened. But sometimes it actually literally means ten. So last night it actually literally meant ten, ten tests that Am Yisrael tested Hashem, meaning ten complaints that were so big that they had against Hashem, ten sins that were so great that they had against Hashem, that Hashem literally considered destroying them for it. Here we have the exact opposite. Here we have ten miracles that Hashem Barach, our Father in Heaven, may His name be blessed forever and ever, ten miracles that He made for Am Yisrael in the Bet HaMikdash. Bezat Hashem, the third one will be built soon. Now obviously there's a lot more than ten miracles. But here we have ten specific ones that were, Wow. Why wow? This was the foundation. So what are these ten miracles? So he says the following. No woman miscarried because of the aroma of the sacrificial meat. If he would have just simply said no woman miscarried for 900 years, that's good. But you're saying something specific. No woman miscarried because of the aroma of the sacrificial meat. Now you should know that the Bet HaMikdash we had two. The first one was around for 410 years. Then we had a 70 year break after it was destroyed. And then the second one was around for 420 years. 
So in essence, a total time span of 900 years. Some say that these miracles were in both Batei Amikdash. But there are some opinions that say, no, it was only in the first one. Most hold that it was in both, or at least most of them were in both. Either way, the lessons we learn apply as if it's happening right now. So first thing it says, no woman miscarried because of the aroma of the sacrificial meat. Obviously, we'll expend upon that momentarily. Second miracle, it says a sacrificial meat. Never smelled, never became putrid. You ever go to a butcher store or you get some meat? One of the reasons they put everything in the fridge is not necessarily just to preserve it. It's also to preserve it so it doesn't smell bad. But even, even if you uh, go directly to the cow, they slaughter the cow, already it smells. So it says here, never smelled. Wish we had that miracle today. No fly was seen in the place where the sacrificed meat was butchered. Even if you go to a restaurant where it's not butchered, it's fresh, it's cooked, it's everything, it's flies all the time. Here you're saying, no flies. No flies in the Beit HaMikdash. No seminal emission occurred to the high priest on Yom Kippur. Seminal emission meaning someone having a uh, the uh, semen come out, obviously by uh, not intentionally. If through a dream or otherwise, but not intentional. It says that never happened. Not to the everyone, specifically to the Kohen Gadol. Specifically to the Kohen Gadol. The rain never extinguished the fire of the altar pier. So it doesn't say that it never rained. It rained. It rained. But the Kshamim, the Geshem, never put out the fire. Because there's always a fire in the Bet HaMikdash. There's always a fire and the fire never went out. Even when there was rain, because there was there was an open roof, so it's raining right on top of it, but the fire keeps going. Number six, the wind did not disperse the vertical column of smoke from the altar. So the fire created some smoke. The incense offering created the smoke, which we'll talk about the significance of the smoke and what it does and who and what and where. But it says that even when there was strong wind, there was a miracle that the wind would not touch or be able to change anything with this pillar of smoke. As if it's a pillar of stone. From the Bet HaMikdash all the way to the sky. No disqualification was found in the Omer, the two loaves and the showbread. These are different types of uh, parts of the offerings and parts of the things that we have in the Bet HaMikdash. None of these specific things, the Omer, the loaves, the showbread, ever had any issues where they were tameh. They're always good. 
Now, sometimes you buy a challah. On the outside, it looks good. You're excited about it. It looks good. Maybe it has some sesame seeds on it. Looks tasty. Looks fluffy. You paid $8 for it sometimes. Like, ah, oh, Baruch Hashem, it's for Shabbat. Shabbat. Rabbi Aaron says, Hashem pays for it. $8, no problem. You get to Yom Shishi, you get to the Kiddush, you do Kiddush, Motzelechim in Aret. This challah is like a fake show. What happens? It's stale. It's stale, or it's doughy, or it's uncooked, or something. But he can't return, he can't do nothing. What do you tell him? Listen, I ate, a, I ate a bite of this, can you take it back? He's saying, even that, even that. Obviously, much more than that, but. Number eight. The people stood crowded together. Yet there were ample space when they prostrated themselves. Honestly, if you would have just said the people stood crowded together, that alone is a miracle. That they stood together. But he's saying, no, no, it's even more. They stood crowded together, and there was ample space after they were mishtachabim. They bowed, they bowed to Hashem. But they bowed to Hashem, how they bowed to Hashem? Not like we bow to Hashem today when we do Amidah. We bow and some people barely bow and some people don't bow at all. No. The way we bow is actually the way we do it during uh, the Yamima Noraim or Le'avdi, the way the Arabs do it every day. All the way to the floor, on your knees and everything. That's the way we used to bow every day when we prayed. Did we use a carpet? I don't know. I'll, I'll, I'll check uh, my time machine. I'll go and I'll, uh, <laughs> after the shiur, I'll let you know. Next miracle is uh, neither serpent nor scorpion ever caused an injury in Jerusalem. Now, Baruch Hashem, living in modern society, you don't really have this fear of snakes and scorpions for most people. But this wasn't always the case. You just go back a couple of generations, or even when I was a kid in Israel, um, I remember as a child, I, uh, we had uh, sometimes a big uh, scare where a scorpion appeared in the yard. Scorpions are not so friendly. They don't say kuchi kuchi ku. By the time you find out, it's not kuchi kuchi ku anymore. It said, Gemara says three things are surprise. Three things of surprise. What three things of surprise? Finding a wallet. Anytime you find a wallet, it's full of cash. Surprise! I can pay the rent. Surprise! Unless there's a uh, there's some type of identification, then you have to return it. Which, by the way, if it's a Jew, you're obligated to return it. If it's a non-Jew, you're not obligated to return it. But you can fulfill a big mitzvah by returning it called Kiddush Hashem. You go return it to the guy or the woman. He say, listen, I'm returning it to you because I'm a Jew. And that's Kiddush Hashem mitzvah. It's the biggest mitzvah you could possibly make. But you're not obligated to return it if it's a non-Jew. But you should. You should. It's also an ethical thing to do. But Gemara uh, says this is a surprise. You find a wallet, it's full of money. Not credit cards you're going to go steal. It's full of cash. Credit card, you know who it belongs to. They're just a thief. Which we talked about yesterday, about thieves. So, that's a surprise. Second surprise, the Gemara says, is the sting of a scorpion. Why sting of a scorpion? 
Because until he stung you, you didn't even realize he was there. Problem is, by the time he stung you, it's too late. What are you going to do? Unless you have a cure, which we'll talk about the cure, by the way. We have the cure. Enigma, talk about the cure. And unless you have the cure, Shemechem could be uh, doomed. I remember when I was a kid, I was really, really young. My mom said that a huge, huge black scorpion was Mamash right next to my brother. Right next to my brother. Mamash miracle. In the army, and you know, they go, you know, with all these Shemechem, uh, all the uh, fights we have against these Arab terrorists in the desert. Plenty of scorpions over there. Shema says scorpions one of the surprises. Third one is what surprise? Mashiach. So it says throughout all of this time in Yerushalayim, no serpent, meaning no snake, and no scorpion ever caused injury. Okay. There's obviously much more significance than that. The details of what it means. And last but not least, it says. No man has ever said to his fellow, the space is insufficient for me to stay overnight in Yerushalayim. Meaning whoever went to Yerushalayim didn't have any problems finding a place, even though technically, according to, you compare it to the size of the rest of the world, it's a very small place. It says it doesn't matter how many people showed up, whether it's for the Chagim or day to day, the Irak Doja is like the skin of a deer. The skin of a deer where it stretches endlessly. If you don't have use for it, meaning you're not using the space, it contracts. If there's more people show up, it expands. Much miracle. And people say it's very much alive and well, this miracle to this day. According to the math we did, it was more. More, like seven billion. It was more. I don't remember the exact number, but it was more. Yeah, it was more. So, now, so we have a Mishnah. It talks about miracles in the Beit Hamikdash. We have Matan Torah, many hundreds of years before it. And Bezot Hashem, we have you, Rabotai, that I have a lot of schuyot in Shemayim because you came here to Shiur at ten o'clock at night or nine o'clock at night. So apparently we have to say some good chidushim. So, what's the significance of all these miracles? Why do we need to know them? Why is this a Mishnah? This is not just a divrei chokhmah, just uh, things of teachings for, just to stimulate your mind. The Pirkei Avot is the best of the best. Meaning that the Avot HaKadoshim, our forefathers, Pick the best of the best foundational lessons that each and every one of you has to apply. Not you should. Has to apply to his life. Has to apply to his life. Which means they pick this. This is something you have to apply to your life. So obviously, even though we don't have Betta Mikdash, unfortunately, the lessons apply to us. So, in the previous Mishnah, you noticed... That it says that Am Yisrael tried Hashem ten times. Ten times. But it didn't say how. It didn't say what the ten times was. I said what it did, because that's a commentary. But the Mishnah itself didn't write the tests. 
Why didn't say the test? Because you could easily look up in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, and see what the tests were. Here, on the other hand, the Tosfot Yom Tov says, you see a Mishnah is written very differently. also says ten, but it specifies the ten. Why does it specify the ten? Because these ten specific miracles are actually not written in the Torah. This is part of our oral Torah. You live then, you know it. And this is part of our tradition, part of our oral Torah. Now, the Hasid Yavitz, if you guys remember, I talked about it maybe a month or two ago, says that the laws of nature, laws of nature that we're all used to, were not the same in the Bet HaMikdash. Bet HaMikdash was like an island of its own. But not like an island, like, yeah, you go on an island, you cross a boat, you're on an island, and it's the same thing, really. There's still rain, there's still sun, there's still everything the same. It's just you're far away from people. No, no, he says, there's different laws. It might as well be a different planet. The laws of nature changed. In the Bet HaMikdash, he says, in all the things that we're used to, for example, the spoilage and destruction that we're used to, if you, let's say, for example, uh, you uh, buy an apple. The fact that, you know, you have to eat the apple within, I don't know, a few days, unless they put a lot of chemicals on it, more than what they already do, then it survives a few weeks. But in reality, without the chemicals and the poison they put on it, a few days, you don't eat it, it's gone. That destruction, that spoilage, wasn't always the case. When you buy a piece of meat... What do you do the first thing you do? You put it in a freezer. Why? Because if you leave it out, within a few hours, it's already going bad. If it's hot, you're finished. You put a piece of meat on in, in a hot sun, within a couple of hours, you're going to start seeing maggots and worms come out of it. So you put it in a freezer, or at the very least, you put it in the fridge. So the meat goes bad. Hasid Yavid says, this is all due to the sin of Adam Arishon. Originally, none of this was supposed to happen. Originally, everything was supposed to last permanently, including Adam Arishon. Including Adam and Chava. They were supposed to last forever. And things like, for example, we learn in the uh, one of the prophecies of uh, what's going to happen when the Mashiach comes. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 6, it says, V'gal ze'evim keves, the wolf and the sheep shall live peacefully together. It's a very, very well-known verse in the Torah, that a wolf and a sheep will be together, and uh, and so on. Snakes will play with babies, all types of interesting things. It says this was actually the reality of Adam Arishon in Gan Eden. The fact that it's different now is only because of that original sin. It's going to come back again when Mashiach comes. But you should know some of these things also existed in Bet Hamikdash. These things that to us are supernatural were very much natural in Bet HaMikdash. It wasn't supernatural. It was natural there. 
if let's say for example right now we go outside we see rain it's natural rains how we see rain all the time especially in florida seems like it rains all, every day now if it starts raining green no one's going to leave the house they think maybe there's some type of chemicals in the water the government's trying to kill us oh who knows maybe hillary clinton's behind it who knows it's green After a little while, two, three, four days of green rain, somebody's going to go outside. We see nothing happens to him. A few more people are going to go outside. We see nothing happens to him. A few more people are going to go outside. If it continues raining like this for the next six months, eventually, what is it? It's natural. It becomes normal. It's no longer a miracle. It's no longer supernatural. We become used to it. That's the difference, Rabotai, between nature and the supernatural. In essence, they're the same exact thing. It's just that nature is some is a miracle, is a supernatural that you got used to. Nature is the is is a supernatural. It's miracles that you got used to them. You forgot their miracles. Somebody says, "Listen, I I'd love to see a miracle if the the table could just fly in the air." I know that God exists. I said, well, what about if something bigger than the table? He goes, yeah, of course. I said, what about something bigger than the house? He goes, yeah, definitely. I said, what about something bigger than 10 houses? He says, for sure. I said, go to the army over there. They have an airport. You see their planes? Each one of them can fit 20 houses. <laughs> and they're in the air. How do you explain it? No, but it's physics. What physics? Can you explain physics? Even the physics people can't explain physics. So, the Hasid Yavid said the supernatural was very much natural. It was a, as if it was a planet, a eel of its own, a, a city of its own. Also, we learn in the tabernacle in the Midbar that we had for 40 years, the Torah tells us something extraordinary. It gives us the exact measurements of the tabernacle. Exact measurements where the table is, where the Arona Kodesh is, where the menorah is. Every single thing, it tells us where everything is. We have the measurements. Exact measurements. And then we see the, the, the Arona Kodesh, it's not supposed to fit. We see the measurements. This one takes this. This one takes this. This one takes this. We see the measurements. We see the Arona Kodesh doesn't fit. But it's there. How? There's no space. Torah says it's a miracle. What do you mean miracle? The Arona Kodesh did not occupy any space. It was right there, just like you guys are all here. Big this big table over here. It's as if this space is exactly like we see it, but it's occupying no space. As if it's as if nothing is this it's not disturbing anything else. To imagine that is impossible. So you have to be there. If you're not there, then you missed out. But that's the difference between natural and supernatural in reality is that natural are things that we got used to. Supernatural are things that were new to us. So now we're going to find out each one of these miracles, what's the significance of each one of them. So it starts with, A woman did not miscarry because of the aroma of the sacrificial meat. Now it's a Alakha in Shukhan Aruch. Alakha in Shukhan Aruch. And it's also mentioned in the Gemara, Sechet Yomah, page 32a. 
that if a woman is pregnant, if a woman is pregnant, and she, she can have cravings. Now, once a woman becomes cra- uh, becomes pregnant, control is no longer part of her day-to-day, meaning her cravings are no longer under her control. It's not like free choice like you and I have as men. Once a woman is pregnant, it's not like, oh, come on, honey, you don't really need ice cream at 2 o'clock in the morning. If a woman is pregnant, your wife is pregnant, and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, or 3 o'clock in the morning, or 4 o'clock in the morning, or it's the middle of the job, or after the job, or sometimes in the job, it doesn't make a difference. She says, I have a craving for so-and-so, you must go get it. I'm not telling you for Shlom Bayit. Shlom Bayit is a different shoe. I'm telling you to save her life. No, no, I'm dead serious. This, once a woman has a serious craving, it's not her free choice. A woman that has a craving when she's pregnant, it's considered pikuach nefesh. It's considered pikuach nefesh. So the Gemara talks about how, what if she has a craving to eat on Yom Kippur? Yom Kippur, la parot She's craving. Gemara says, we have a process. We don't just automatically give her the food. We have a process. First, we go and we whisper in her ear. One of the uh, tzaddikim or tzaddikot whisper in her ear, Hey, it's Yom Kippur. Wait a minute, she knows Yom Kippur. She's, she sees. She sees, she's in the Beknesset. She's in the Beknesset, but she doesn't know Yom Kippur. She says, no, 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 we're reminding the baby. Because the baby is the one that's creating all these cravings. We're reminding the baby it's Yom Kippur. Which, by the way, as a side note, this actually is one of these gulot, one of the things that the Chachamim say, is that if you say to the woman that, hey, it's Yom Kippur, and, the baby, and it stops, the craving goes away, it's a very, very good indication that the person is going to be a tzaddik. And who did it happen to? It happened to Rav Vadya's mom. When, when Rav Vadya's mom was pregnant with him, she had a craving, a mas, a serious craving, to eat on Yom Kippur. One of the uh, rabbis came and did the same exact thing as says in the Torah. Hey, it's Yom Kippur. Calm down. Baby, Rav Vadya. Alvayalenu. If he doesn't come down, no, it just means it's normal. It just means it's normal. It doesn't mean that we're not, uh, it doesn't become Esav or anything. Not Esav, just wants this hungry. Just a hungry little cute baby. So, first they whisper in her ear. Now, if it doesn't work, if it doesn't work, what do we do? Do we feed her? Do we give her a nice juicy steak? Do we do a barbecue? Or do we give her a little candy? Shut up and you're making us, the rest of us hungry. What do we do? What do we do? Now, if a woman is patu from a uh, from from a fast, meaning she just had a baby, she's not pregnant, she just had a baby, which if she just had a baby, let's say within a short period of time, let's say a week, two weeks, three weeks after she had a baby, she's still considered pikuach nefesh, still considered a life risk. So, if there's a fast, there's much more leniency for her than anyone else. In many cases, they say you shouldn't even try. In some of these uh, issues, but if she just had, if she's breastfeeding, or she is a, she just literally just gave birth, 
within the last month or so, then it's considered pikuach nefesh. So the Chachamim say she should try. She should try to fast. Let's say if it's Tisha B'Av or something like that. She should try to fast. But if there's a serious craving, she's hungry, it's making her sick or something like that, then she's allowed to break the fast. But not to celebrate. Meaning, don't go and start making a steak on Tisha B'Av. Okay, you gave birth. You're you're, you're not all you know. You're not 100 healthy. You have Hashem. You brought another Jew to the, to the world. Great, but uh, you're obligated to fast. But you have a uh, leniency. Fine, no problem. You can't hold it. No problem. You have it. But don't go and start making steaks. Eat the minimum that you're required to eat. Minimum. Just take a bite of uh, oatmeal or something, or a bite of something. Minimum. Now here we have a different law. If she's pregnant and she has a craving, the Shulchan Aruch and the Gemara and then the Shulchan Aruch say, we feed her as much as she needs until her face comes back to what it was, meaning her face, she's back to health and she's come and she returns to herself. Meaning, even if she needs six steaks, give it to her. No problem. Why? There's two lives on the line. At least. The baby and hers. Because of this craving. So craving is not something that you take lightly. It's not something you take lightly. Not according to the Torah. Why? Because it's not up to her. It's not under our control. So now, the women would come to the Bet HaMikdash. Chagim, Korbanot, and so on. Now the smell of the Korbanot was delicious. But you're not allowed to have it. It's not for you. Some of the Korbanot, just for the Kohanim, some of the Korbanot are completely burned. You can't eat everything. It's not, uh, it's not a restaurant. It's not McDonald's. Kosher version. It's not. It's, a, it's Korbanot. But it still makes a delicious uh, smell. So what if the woman has a craving for this? What if they have a craving for this? Rabotai, there's a couple of opinions that say we would be permitted to give it to her, but most opinions say no giving it to her. Yeah, but our life is real on, on the line. Can't give it to her. Rabbi Vajja is one of them, said oh, we don't give it to them. But life's on the line, we don't give it to them. So what's this Mishnah say? Good news. Why don't we give it to them? Why, the, why is there so many opinions that say we don't give it to them? We just said for the last 20 minutes it's Pikuach Nefesh. Because one of the 10 miracles that happened in the Bet HaMikdash is Hashem said, I'm taking it on myself, promising you that no woman is going to die from the cravings of the Kobanot. She's going to have cravings. He's not saying she's not going to have the cravings. She's going to have the cravings. But if you don't give it to her on this specific case, don't worry, there's not going to be any, any uh, miscarriages. She's not going to die. The baby's going to be fine. Everything's going to be fine. I'm taking it on myself. If she was craving pig, yeah. why is she craving pig? <laughs> no, I heard it. There's one of the things she's craving the pig. It's not kosher. Ken. She really wants to be stuffed to give it to her. Ken, yes, but the point is, is that here we're, we don't have pig in Bethlehem. But yes, yes, there's a lot of leniency of what you give to them when it comes to... Um, Cravings. So one of the miracles is 
that even if she has the craving for one of the korbanot, we don't give it to them because there's a miracle that Hashem says, no one, don't worry, no one's going to get hurt. Now there is a Gemara in Masechet Psachim, page 64b. It says, En sumchin alanis. We're not allowed to rely on miracles. Meaning, the fact that she has a craving, and we're not going to give her the actual korban, meaning we're relying on a miracle. But the Gemara says she's not allowed to rely on miracles. So how does it work? It says, this is a miracle Hashem took in his, in his own hands. He said it's going to happen. Meaning it's guaranteed. We have a deal. Meaning he's turned the supernatural into natural. Why? It's the Bet HaMikdash. It's a different area. It's a different place. Different rules. Different rules. This also reminds me of uh, last week's parasha when Yetziat Mitzrayim, before we uh, left Egypt... Hashem said that uh, Am Yisrael is on the 49th level of Tum'ah. And if they make one more sin, Allah Hashem And this is the best of them left after you already killed so many. Now, you have to do something. He says, I'm going to give him two mitzvot. At least you have some mitzvot. You have no mitzvot. Do some mitzvot. What mitzvah? We're going to have the Korban Pesach. And we're going to have Brit Milah. Mila. So how do you do Korban Pesach? He says, go take all the sheep. You can take all the sheep, all the uh, goats. Go take the goats. Tie them to your beds. Tie them, tie them to your beds for a few days. After a few days, on this day, slaughter them and, put, and, and cook them on the uh, barbecue, but the whole thing. Why the whole thing? So the Egyptians can see it. Oh, hold on a second, Hashem. You realize these goats are the Egyptians' god, right? So you're telling us not only, not only are we going to take their gods and tie it to our bed, and bang, 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 nonstop. The Egyptians are going to come. They're going to see, hey, hey, what are you doing with my god? Why is he tied to your bed? Why is my god tied to your bed? Leave my god alone. Leave my god alone. What do you want from my god? Leave my god alone. And then on top of it, not only if we survive these few days, we survive these few days, the Egyptians didn't kill us for tying up their God for a few days to our beds, and they're bang, bang for, for, for a week already. They're, they're making all this noise. They didn't kill us. We somehow survived this time. Fine. Now on top of it, you want us to do a mangle, do a barbecue where you see that it's actually their God being cooked, and we're about to eat it. Like, we're not even hiding. We're not even making, like, shish kebabs out of it. We're not making any pastrami out of it. Nothing. It's mamash. Hey, this is your God. We're cooking. We're eating it right now. You want a bite? You want a bite? We're not hiding it. He says, that's the first mitzvah. So Ami said was scared to death. Scared to death. And Chachamim say, this was one of the biggest miracles that happened in Egypt. That they actually didn't, that the, the uh, Egyptians were not able to kill them. They came, they saw, they spoke, they complained, but they couldn't do anything about it. But how did we get the omits? When we have no mitzvot, we have barely any schuyot because we ran out of them by now. We're not exactly tzaddikim. How do we have the omits? It's not like we had emunah, we remember what happened. Most of us didn't even want to leave Egypt. Emunah wasn't exactly a, we didn't have a surplus of emunah in our accounts. 
So how do we get this omets, this koach, this, you know, this, the, the guts to do such a thing, the strength to do such a thing? How? There's only one part of the human body, one part of the human body that did not sin in Gan Eden. Adam Arishon made a sin with Chava. But it's one part of him did not sin. What sin? Which part is that? The nose. The nose didn't sin. Sense of smell is very, very important to your spirituality. Meaning, you're not allowed to learn Torah if there's a bad smell. Not allowed to learn Torah if there's a bad smell. Kalvachona, needless to say, you're not allowed to learn Torah in a bathroom. Now, if you're studying or you're praying and one of these people that have no manners or no control over their body passes gas, you must stop immediately. You cannot continue studying until it's gone. The Gemara in Masechet Shabbat talks very, very harsh against such people that do it in Shure Torah or in Bet Knesset, they pass gas. Very harsh, very harsh words. People think, eh, it's no big deal, it's gas. What, you want me to leave it in? Yeah, leave it in or go to the bathroom. But some people, it's not their fault. They have a problem. Needless to say, everyone else doesn't have to suffer for their problem. So, what if somebody has bad odor, body odor? He has to go take a shower. You cannot walk around with bad body odor. You're making Hashem look bad. Says, oh, look at this Jew, smells so bad. And that's why a lot of these Gdolei uh, Ado were very, very much against some cultures within Hasidut and other parts of Am Yisrael that uh, tell their people not to take showers for a week at a time and they smell really, really bad. And the deodorant, this is actually not only Chilul Hashem amongst our brothers and sisters, where like, who wants to be religious if you're going to smell bad all the time? But on top of it, it's actually Chilul Hashem in, in the eyes of the Goyim. They're like, look at this. This is the Am Kadosh. So this actually is a bad, bad idea. But listen, they have their own rabbis that they're listening to. The point I'm trying to say, Rabotai, is that you're not allowed to just walk around smelly. It's not everybody else's uh, fault that uh, you have a problem. You have to take care of yourself. Okay, it's in the Gemara. It's in the Gemara. Somebody ate garlic and came to the shiur of Riyudanasi. And uh, Rabbi Udanasi, Rabbi Akadosh, smelled and stopped the shiur. Said, whoever ate garlic, get out now. 500 people in the shiur. Everybody got up and left. Why? They didn't want to embarrass the one guy. They didn't want to embarrass the one guy. They said that the point is, is that Smell is very, very important. So this is a very pure part of your body. Now you remember the story I told you last night about Rav Steinemann, where he actually lost his, he prayed for Hashem to take away his sense of smell because accidentally he smelled Abu Dazara. He passed by a church and they were doing some type of incense offering or some type of Abu Dazara that they were doing over there. And he smelled it and he only realized that, he sm- that it's coming from Avodah Zarah after the fact. It came, you know, the smell is natural. You don't think about what you're going to smell. It just comes. 
He says, maybe, maybe my accidental smelling of Abu Zarah, indirectly smelling Abu Zarah, maybe that upset Hashem. Hashem, you know what? Just take it away from me. I don't need it. He prayed to Hashem. He cried to Hashem hysterically to take away his sense of smell so I never sin again like this. Not even accidental. And Rabbi Ephraim says, look at that. He never prayed to lose his vision. He never prayed to lose his hands. He never prayed to lose his feet. He never prayed to lose anything else. Why? The rest of them never even sinned accidentally. As we have work to do. How much those people know what is Oh yeah, yeah. He used the, last last night sure. Last night sure. He was saying he would constantly compare everything to Gainom. Constantly compare. One time he they gave him uh, hot oatmeal. It's like ah, oh, this is like Gainom. Like no, good. It's just it's just oatmeal. It's just hot oatmeal. No, no, it's Gainom. It's Gainom. One time it was hot outside. Oh, it's a Gainom. What's Gainom? It's just hot outside. It's just the summer. No, it's a Gainom. I want. One time they, his students were scared to death. Why? They hear a lot of a lot of stuff from him. One time. Students were surprised even at what he said. What did he say? He says, you know, I really don't know if they're going to cook me in Gainom or not. I really don't know if they're going to cook me or not in Gainom. This is an Ish Kadosh, Hadruach HaKodesh. And he's like, I don't know if they're going to cook me in Gainom. And we all think we're going to Ganeid in first class. No, there's hope. It's just that we can't be so overly confident. So now Rabotai... Back to the smell, back to the Korban, back to the Mishnah. Hashem Itbarach knows His creation. The Creator knows His creation. He says, okay, there's one thing in you that triggers, triggers a lot of things. Your sense of smell. You're scared. You have a fear. But you also have desires. So He made them smell one of the Korbanot that Moshe Rabbeinu did. Moshe Rabbeinu took one of these uh, sheep or these uh, goats and He started doing a barbecue with them. And Hashem... Put the smell of Gan Eden, the smell of Gan Eden on the sheep from the barbecue, the special barbecue, not like our barbecues. He actually put the smell of Gan Eden. Everybody said, oh, 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 Moshe, can you give us a piece? Said, no, I can't give you a piece. Why? So you have to get your own, you have to do Brit Milah, you have to do things that uh, <laughs> says in the Torah. I can't give it to you. Can't give you Korban if you don't have Brit Milah. Can't give you Korban if you don't do this. You don't. Can't. The smell gave them the courage. The smell gave them the courage. They all took one of the sheep, one of the goats. Oh, let's go. God, no God. Let's go of the uh, Pharaoh's God. Okay, we'll cook Pharaoh if we have to for the smell. The, the desire for, for, to, for food, but not just regular food, for Gan Eden, got them to have omits, got them to have the strength. So now we have, we see that the, uh, the, the power of smell is very, very significant. Next. It says a sacrificial meat never smelled, never smelled bad. If you ever go to any butcher store, any fish store, anyone that you see, there's dead animals there. Even if they're all going to be delicious five minutes later, the reality is it smells. Now why are the people over there that live there or that work there, they don't, they're not bothered by it. In fact, they even like it sometimes. Why? They get used to it. But if you go in and go out of the, the, the meat section, it's not exactly the pleasant. If you go in and out into a farm with the cows and the chickens and so on, it's not pleasant. 
says even the place where they actually had all the slaughtering, all the meat, all the everything. I mean, you're talking about when you have when you slaughter a cow or you slaughter a chicken or you slaughter a sheep or anything like that. It's not all. It's not all meat. There's other stuff there. The intestines, what's in the intestines, the waste, and so on. It's disgusting. It's awful. I remember when I was a kid, my mom, God bless her, she's uh, for her. We come from Tripoli, and uh, I mean, Ag in Tripoli was to make, I believe it's in Pesach, zbana and kukla. This is a food that is delicious. But to make it, it's mamash kaparat avonot. It's mamash, it, it wipes off at least five or ten years out of genom. Why? You take the intestines, you've got to actually empty out what's in the intestines. Hashem and what's in the intestines. The whole neighborhood starts to smell. The whole neighborhood starts to smell. But once you want it, it's cooked with everything else, Baruch Hashem. Baruch Hashem, it's delicious. No, Chameen, Chameen is peanuts next to this. My dad makes it stuff for me can, but it's Zvan and Kukla? Yeah, it's good, but if, you, if you're able to do it, we don't do it anymore. It's not, it's not, it's not available. The, those types of meat are not available in America, kosher. But the point is, is that when you slaughter an animal, it's not all meat. There's other stuff there. So the, one of the miracles is, is that in Gemara Masechet Zvachim, page 55a, it says that not only that none of this ever smelled, not over that never smelled, but the, they didn't have refrigeration back then. There's no refrigerators that after you cook it, after you uh, slaughter, you put it in a fridge, and you know, no, it would stay on for a couple of days. It'd stay outside for a couple of days in one night, two days in one night, according to the Gemara. With no refrigeration, no nothing, and on top of it, exposed to the hot summer of Yerushalayim. You go in Yerushalayim in a hot summer, you melt. You yourself melt. The meat is asking you why you should uh, do something about that. Says not only is the meat not smell, it's like fresh, perfect. On top of it, we learned something extraordinary. <coughs> Why didn't it smell? Because it was besar kodesh. Lo isriach besar kodesh. The putrid, the smell. Didn't happen because the meat was considered kodesh, was considered holy, was going to become a korban. Now, the reshaim have always been around. It's not that they just appeared in this generation and uh, bother me all the time. Over Mizrahi, they've always been around. So there was one rasha in the time of the Vilna Gaon that. Uh, would constantly try to go against them in different ways. One time, the Rabbanit tells the Gaumivina, tells her husband, Kodarav, we ran out of money and the kids don't have anything to eat. What should I do? Now, someone like us. Already we start hysterical crying when she's in the middle of the sentence. By the time she finishes, we're already at some job. What does the Gaon Mivina do? Gaon Mivina says, okay, no problem. I have to go learn Torah. I have to go learn Torah. So in the meantime, why don't you send each one of the kids to different houses around the time that those houses have dinner. So they'll probably take the kid and invite them. So they eat. 
that's it. Send each, you know, spread them around. Don't send all the kids to one house. Send him to Shalom's house. Send him to Yaakov's house. Send him to every one of them has a friend. Send them to their houses around the time that the families are having dinner anyway. And they're going to feed the kid something. You know, it's not like the kid eats that much anyway. For himself, nothing. No, he's going to eat Torah. He's going to go eat Torah. So now this Rasha, this Rasha comes to, he sees, you know, the Vilna Gaon is not working. There's no money. There's no nothing. I mean, it's a, uh, he comes to the wife. He says, what are you doing? Why are you with this guy? He doesn't work. There's no money. Look at your kids. No food. No nothing. Why are you married to this guy? Leave him already. Leave this guy already. The Rabbanit was not uh, like the women of today. He says, yeah, you know what? Maybe it makes sense. No. <laughs> Rabbanit was Kedusha. She says, hold on one second. She knew how to deal with people. Hold on one second. One second. She says, look at these two shirts. One of them, my husband wore for the last week straight. Not like today, you have three outfits a day. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Last One shirt, he wore, he wore for the last week straight. Didn't take it off, nothing. The other shirt, I just finished taking it out of the laundry. I cleaned it. Which one do you think I took out of the laundry? Which one do you think is the clean one? He says, I don't know. They look the same. She says, exactly. That's Basar Kadosh. That's a, my husband is Basar Kadosh. He sanctified his body so much that even sweat doesn't come out of him. Bad smell doesn't exist in his world. I'm washing it just to go through the motion. It doesn't need to be washed. You can wear it for the rest of his life. You want me to leave something like that? It's Kodesh. It's a Sefer Torah. It's like leaving a Sefer Torah for, for Christianity or some craziness. You want me to go leave the truth and go to Abu Dazara? Is something wrong with you? Besar Kodesh lo Yisriach. Besar Kodesh doesn't smell. The uh, the Chachamim understood what it means to sanctify your body. They understood what it means to sanctify your body. One of the Chachamim, I forget the name, I actually think it maybe is a Vilna Gaon also, but I'm not sure. He, uh, a woman was having a tough time, tough time having uh, kids. She had a couple of pregnancies. Hashem Echem, she had miscarriages. They come to the Rav, crying, and uh, he says, okay, no, hold on one second, no problem, no problem. He takes one of his shirts, he says, here, take the shirt and, you know, put it uh, next to you all the time. People watch this, they don't know why the rabbi does what he does. They don't know why the rabbi does what he does. Okay, fine. So, this is what she does. Nine months later, do, 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 wah, 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 it's a little baby. Happy, healthy, Baruch Hashem. So, the Tamidim now see the after effect. How did this happen? Is this gula to, to take a shirt? Is this gula to take your shirt? Should we start selling your shirts in the market for a million bucks a head? What should we do? He goes, no, no, it's nothing. I just knew, Basar Kodesh lo Yisriach. Apparently, there's something in our house that's affecting the Neshama of the baby. So I need to give us some Kodesh, Besar Kodesh, to take away the bad smell. We put Besar Kodesh, we said, holy meat. What holy meat? His meat. 
So all of those people that think it's a mitzvah to smell bad, I don't know. I don't know where they're getting it from. So one time, oh, so the next thing that's also connected is the veloni razvu mi beta bet mitbachim, mitbachim. It says that not even a fly, a fly, forget about it, it didn't smell. Even a fly, you didn't, no one ever saw a fly. Where? Exactly where they butchered all the meat. The one place for sure you're going to have a fly. In a rest, the best restaurant in the world. Nine classes, nine stars, whatever best restaurant is. Five stars, seven stars, a thousand stars, whatever best restaurant you think. Kosher, Mehadrin, whatever. The best restaurant is going to have a fly. Or two or three or some people that work as much. Gehim says it's much bigger things than flies in these restaurants. So they say some of the uh, some of the people that live there are they have four legs and uh, they're bigger than cats. But here he's saying well, all the meat, all the meat, not even a fly, not even a fly. And you go to any bathroom, public bathroom, disgusting. You go to butcher, disgusting. You see flies everywhere. It's disgusting to people. Rashi says, Hashem made a miracle. No flies. And Tiferet Israel explains it, is that Hashem loved the Kohanim so much that He removed the flies. Why? So they don't get disgusted. The Kohanim, He doesn't want the Kohanim to suffer by seeing a fly. The Kohanim, He doesn't want them to see a fly. Maybe they're going to get disgusted. They're around meat all day. You don't want them to be disgusted? No flies. The... Um, Heretics came to one of these uh, kings one time and told him, look, look at this. They were Jewish. These people were Jewish and the king was a goy. But they, these Jews, well, they weren't exactly the best Jews. They were heretics. They were people that are minim, like this other guy that we talked about yesterday, trying to get Amisad in trouble. So they go to the king and say, look, they start showing him different alachot regarding the bathroom. How to go to the bathroom, what to feel like to say, how to manage yourself, what to think about, what not to think about. Different details of how to manage yourself in the bathroom. It's like, look at these Jews. Look what they learn all day. So the king starts looking at it. And he keeps saying, wow. 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 Like, they're thinking, we'd be reading the wrong book. What do we give him? We give him proof. What do we give him? This guy. They're thinking... He's going to see the books and see that the Jews are learning about laws of the bathroom. He's like, oh, these people are wasting time. Send them to work. Send them to be my slaves like they were in Egypt. Send them to do something with it. Learning about the bathroom all day. How many laws can the bathroom possibly have? All day learning about the bathroom? But the king says, wow! Like we just gave him proofs, Torah proofs. We gave him a Torah and science lecture. So these heretics, Imach Shimam, have no idea what's going on here. After five, ten minutes of wow, 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 finally they get the guts and say, okay, uh, your, your highness, what's so wow about? He says, what, don't you see? If there's a people in the world that care so much about even how they act in a closed room when they're private, that's the most important civilization in the world. 
They wanted to be our. They wanted to create enemies. Hashem made the enemy into a friend. So here, Rabbi Hashem made miracles in the Bet Hamikdash to such an extent that not even a fly, not even a fly would appear. Not even a fly. Now, did you ever ask yourself why did Hashem make flies? David Melech asked questions, but David Melech got different responses. You ask questions, I ask questions, Hashem doesn't respond right away. David Melech asks questions, Hashem responds live. He asks, why did you create shikorim, people that are crazy, people that are drunk? Why did you create, why did you, why did you even make it, such a thing? Why did you create uh, different uh, hornets? For what? What did you make hornets for? What do we need a hornet for? It's painful, it hurts people. Why did you create spiders? What do we need spiders for? It makes these webs everywhere. Sometimes, uh, what do we need spiders for? He asked these questions. David Melech, Kodesh Kodeshim. He asked these questions. Hashem says, in your life, you're going to see why He created them. Us, we ask questions. Hashem doesn't even bother talking to us. David Melech, He talks to Him. So in His life, He sees the answer to every one of these questions. But how does He see it? It's not like He sends Him an email. He says He gets into trouble. So one time, Shaul HaMelech, Shaul HaMelech thought that he judged David HaMelech as a rodef. He judged David HaMelech as if he's trying to kill him. Even though David HaMelech wasn't trying to kill him. The way he understood it is that he was trying to steal the kinghood that didn't belong to him. He didn't believe that he was really supposed to be the rightful king. So he tried killing him. He tried chasing him everywhere. So after chasing him down one time, David HaMelech hid in a cave. Problem is that eventually Shaul and his army is going to get to the cave. So Hashem made a miracle that a spider made web that closed the cave. So as soon as Shaul and his people got to the cave, they saw that there's a huge web covering the whole thing. Like, oh, there's no way that he's in this cave. To make such a to make such a web take three months. So there's no way that he's in there. The next thing is one time Shaul Melech was sleeping in a camp with all of his people. And David Melech wanted to prove to Shaul, listen, I'm not your enemy. I'm not your enemy. So he went into the camp and he took the sword of Shaul. But as soon as he took the sword, Avner, his leg, he was a giant, Josh, big, huge, strong. His leg went on top of David. Didn't allow him to move. He couldn't move. He couldn't move his leg. His leg was bigger than him. So he started praying to Hashem, Hashem, help me, I can't move. If, if I stay like this till they wake up any minute, they're going to kill me. They're going to make me into the uh, hornet. So Hashem sent a little hornet to sting Avner. And Avner was so big and strong that unlike us, we start crying for a week and a half of the hornet. Avner gets stung, and he's still sleeping, just moves his leg. And David gets freed by the one thing that he asked, why did Hashem create it? So Hashem, he got a second answer. Then one time, a bunch of Philistines, not Palestinian terrorists, Philistines, different people altogether. The Philistines caught David Melech while he was strolling out, strolling in the street one day, just taking a stroll, thinking about Hashem, talking to Hashem, they catch him. Now they bring him to their king, how is David Melech going to get out of this? He knows that as soon as the king sees him, he's going to cut him into little pieces, make hot dogs out of him. What does he do? He pretends to be a drunk. Pretends to be Meshuga, pretends to be crazy. Now, why does this specific thing work here? Why did it work here? I mean, a lot of you can pretend to be crazy. Why? 
this king had a kaparat avonot. What? Both his wife and his daughter went crazy. So he goes to his people. He goes, don't I have enough crazy people here? This is not David. I have enough crazy people in my life. I know crazy when I see it. This is not David. Go away. Send them away. So David Amalek got his answers of why all these things were created. But we have a different question. Why did Hashem create a hornet? Why did He create flies? Why did He create these different things? And Baruch Hashem, the Gemara, actually talks about it. This is obviously not the sole reason. There's many other reasons. But here, the Gemara talks about different tamim, different things of usefulness for the creation. Because there's no such thing as a creation without a purpose. Hashem does not create something without a purpose. So the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat, page 77b, it says, Rabbi Yehuda says a few things. It says that, Lo echad Hashem did not create even a single thing needlessly. Everything has a purpose. Everything. Okay, so give us some examples. He gives us some examples. Barash Ablul Lechatit. He created the slug. The slug created it. When you look at a slug, it's, it doesn't exactly pleasing to the eye. You think this is a purposeless creation. Says the slug can be used as a remedy, meaning as medicine for a sore. For a sore, and some people say that this shablul is a snail, but the point is that this is something that can be used as a medicine for a sore, like an abscess. And the chachamim detail a little more than you know how, who, what, and where. Okay, so why did he create the uh, the fly, the fly, barazvuv letzira? He created the fly to serve as the cure for the sting of a hornet. So how, how, is, the, how is the fly a, a, uh, a cure for the sting of a hornet? You crush the fly and you put it exactly where the hornet stung you, it will make the pain go away. Yetush the nachash. Why did he create the gnat, those annoying gnats? That at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, you usually have 60 zillion of them right in front of your face. But by the time you realize that they're there, it's already in your mouth. Why did he create them? Some say it's mosquito, some say it's gnat you're talking about here. It says, Yetush Lenachash. What's the Yetush Lenachash? He created the gnat because that provides a cure for the bite of a snake. A snake bite. How? You crush them, you crush the, uh, some say fly, some say, uh, 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 gnats, you crush them, and you put them exactly where the snake bite is. Don't try this at home. Why did he create the snake, Michal? Why did he create the snake? The snake can be used as a cure for certain types of boils. Alvai, I would have known this 10 years ago and had the abscesses every week. I would have taken, I would have bathed myself in snake poison. I don't care, just to get away from these poison, these boys. You know how painful these uh, abscesses are? The Gemara says, you took, you take the snake poison, the, uh, you take the snake itself, take the snake itself, and you uh, fix the boil. Now the Gemara says, how? Well, you crush it too. What do you do with it? You take the poison? No, 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 your own is wrong. You don't, you don't take the poison. Poison is going to kill you. What do you do? You take two snakes, you cook them. Cook the snakes. Now, obviously, you can't use the tools anymore for your kosher meals. But you cook the snakes. You cook the snakes. 
And then you rub it on the side of the boil. You take the mixture, you make like a, I guess some type of a, a paste out of it, and you put it on the boil. You put it on the abscess. It says this cures the abscess. I'm going to try this. Any snake or like a whatever snake? Oh, do you have a couple of snakes at home? No. Oh, we can try it after the shiur, live. Put it on the camera, put it over there. So, okay, so this, again, this is, again, interesting things. Last but not least, very interesting. It says, It says, the spider he created as a cure for the sting of a scorpion. So these creatures that seem to be purposeless actually serve as very valuable medicines. And as you know, or you should know, that many, many of the medicines in the world come from nature. They come from nature. It's plants uh, or bugs and so on and so forth. And it goes into more details of who, what, when, and how. Uh, but the point is you can see that the nothing is purposeless. Everything can be used. It's actually a book that was uh, written by uh, Chacham. I forget his name. I think it's... Um, I'm probably going to get the name wrong, so forget the name. But it's actually was written about a hundred years ago. That uh, they use there's a lot of different remedies in the in the Talmud in the uh, Gemara, and he put them all in a book, put them all in a book, and all different types of medicines. And medical students study this book, and they say that first of all, it's amazing that he was able to write this without internet, to know so much knowledge, just to gather all the knowledge both in medicine and Torah. If you just know one of them, you're already genius. To know both of them is beyond genius. To put them all in, in an organized format with a book, 500 pages, it's unbelievable. And it was, uh, it was a German, German Chacham, German Chacham, and it was actually translated to English. Now, I actually saw a review of the book recently uh, from a medical student or a doctor. He said it's unbelievable how right he is. That even... Even if the, uh, the, the stuff that's not right, it's only not right because of minor things, minor details of the times. Overall, it's unbelievable how right he is. No, it's a different book. That book was written 200 years ago. What I'm talking about right now was written 100 years ago. So it says even the things that were wrong were minor, were minor, and it's only because of the times. It's not because he's really wrong. Well, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, Rabotai, you see here already we're in the miracles and we're seeing that the miracles themselves are miracles. And no seminal omission, no seminal omission, occurred to the high priest, to the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur. Why? Why is it such a big deal? Why is it such a big deal? At the end of the Gemara Masechet Yomah, it says that someone that has, that wastes seed accidentally, has a wet dream. Uh, something comes out on Yom Kippur, not on purpose, on purpose, he's Shemin Achem, what kind of problems he has. Talking about accident. Accident. The Shulchan Aruch, Psak Ta'alacha, says he should be worried the entire year. What worried? Worried if he's going to survive the year. Worried if he's going to survive the year. But then it says, what if he survived the year? What if he survived the year? Says then he should be okay, he should feel good about himself. Why? Because it says it's an indication he has olamaba. Wait, wait, hold on a second. A minute ago you said I should be worried 
because maybe I'm going to die this year. Now you're saying I have olam haba. I mean, it's katzer to katzer. This is corner to corner. Just don't give me the worry. And don't give me the. <laughs> leave me alone. How? How? How does this make sense? The Ben Ishchaya Kadosh gives a pirush, and he says, when Hashem wants to give someone big schal, he wants to give you a big reward. The Mekatreg is always going to try to interfere. The Yetzirah, the Malach HaMavit, the Satan, is going to try to interfere. Hey, 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 what are you giving him the big schal? He's, uh, he's not honest in his business. What are you giving him big schal? He's cheap. The guy has $100,000, he donated 50 bucks. What are you giving this guy schal for? What are you giving $200,000? $200,000? No. For what? So he has that. Wow, he's going to donate $100 Hashem? Big deal. Why are you going to give him more money? For what? Why, he's, he's giving you conditions, uh, make me a millionaire, then I'll give a hundred bucks more? Why are you going to give him Hashem? Hashem says, be quiet. He deserves it. Be quiet, he deserves it. Hashem, this doesn't make sense, Hashem. So Hashem says, you're right. I have to give you something to calm you down. I have to give you something to calm you down. I have to give you something. He says when Hashem wants to give a person a big reward, He has to give something to the Satan to quiet him. Because in reality, He's right, He doesn't deserve it. But He wants to give it to him. So what does He do? He gives the guy worry for a year. He gives the guy worry because he wasted seed accidentally. He didn't do it on purpose, me skin. He's trying to keep his weight already two years, three years, trying to keep. Came out, me skin. What is He going to do? Hashem says, because you kept your breed, you protected your breed for three, four, five, six, seven years, I want to give you a big reward. I want to give you money. I want to give you this. I want to give you that. But the Mikatreg is going to constantly remind me that, you know what, before you did tshuva, you did sins. So what do I do? I'm going to make you suffer a little bit. For the one thing that you're trying to protect, I'm going to make you like as if you didn't, like you give you the feeling you didn't do good. Just to shut him up. Why? Because at the end of the year, that's when you get the prize. You have a bad feeling for a year, kaparat avanot. But I promise you, you're going to be okay at the end of the year. So this is, we see it in a lot of mitzvot. This is a little bit of Kabbalah, which I tell you guys to stay away from, but this is something that you need to know. The Ben Yishchai and different Chachamim talked about, this is minimum requirement of what you need to know and maximum requirement of what you need to know. And your tefillin, I told you this before, in your tefillin, I actually thought this was a mistake in my tefillin. A big chacham that wrote our Sefer Torah, we had a Sefer Torah, Rav Shaul in Yerushalayim, wrote a Sefer Torah, he's a East Kodesh, goes into the mikveh before every letter, every, unbelievable. Anyway, he wrote Sefer Torah for us, took a year to write the Sefer Torah. Now when he wrote the Sefer Torah, I brought filin from him also for me. Someone wrote Sefer Torah like this, all the things that they told me, how, who, what, when, and how he does, and I rely on it because Rav Zev, it's his best friend. Meaning they grew up together, so I know he's Kodesh, he's Kodesh. Rav Zev used to study, used to study every day, have, have a uh, breakfast with who? Rav Kaduri. Rav Kaduri used to have breakfast with him every day. He used to have breakfast with him. As a kid, he used to have breakfast with him. He is actually one of the descendants of the Ben Ishchai. He's good people. You rely on people like this. He's a walking Sefer Torah. When I went and did a shiur there in New York a couple of weeks ago, I told the crowd, you know, you guys are very lucky. You may not realize it. Many people have a Sefer Torah in Arona Kodesh. You guys have one in Arona Kodesh, and you have one living, walking around among you. So anyway, Rabotai, the 
he had he had uh, gave me a tefillin, and I see tefillin. First, I noticed the tefillin. Tefillin have like you know the white string that's from here, and it's tied to tie the uh, knots to keep the box closed. And there's a little bit of extra string sticking out a little bit. And I thought that oh maybe he should have cut it or burned it or something. So it's a mistake. And before I cut it, ten bell that I am. I asked my rabbi, I'm like, it's okay for me to cut it? He goes, no! Don't touch it. I'm like, whoa, whoa, it's okay, I'm not going to touch it. Why not? He goes, no, that's for the Yetzirah. I'm like, Yetzirah, where's my Yetzirah? Oh, I have tefillin. Let him have his own tefillin. Get your own tefillin. How much money these tefillin were? Get your own tefillin. He goes, no, no. And he explained it to me. He says, when you have such big schal, such big mitzvah, for doing something, you have to give something, like, to keep him away. So they made, like, in essence, an a accidentally on purpose, an error in every pair of tefillin to put the extra little string there so the Yetzirah is busy with that. Look, 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 you have a mistake. You look like you have a mistake. You have a mistake in your tefillin. It's not a mistake. <laughs> He's busy with that. And we are able to late tefillin without thinking bad thoughts. So they say that for this... For someone to have seminal omission is a big deal. The problem is, if the Kohen have a seminal omission on Yom Kippur, even if Hashem wants to give him a reward, the rest of the nation is in problems. Why? We need the Kohen to go pray for us on Yom Kippur. If he has a seminal omission, he becomes impure and unfit. Unfit. Now they always have a replacement. There's many, many Kohanim. It's a replacement for the coin Gadot. Says there was a miracle from Hashem. Never happened. Never need to replace him for this specific reason. There's other reasons of impurity. There's other reasons for impurity, but for this specific reason, never replaced. 900 years or 830. We had the Bet Mikdash, never had an issue. Why? Because there will be too much embarrassment for him. He may deserve punishment for something he did, but this level of embarrassment nobody ever deserved. So, another miracle. Next. So, the rain did not extinguish the fire. So, the simple explanation here is very, very interesting. It's very interesting. You should have just said, listen, Hashem just didn't make it rain. You just didn't make it rain. That's a bigger miracle. No, it goes, no, it's not a bigger miracle. First of all, we need rain for a lot of other reasons. Second of all, the fact that it rained and you saw the rain go inside the fire and nothing happened, that made it a big deal. Why is it such a big deal? It's not the miracle that the fire didn't come out because of the water and the, and the fire. No, no, it's not that. There's plenty of fires that happen, unfortunately, in different parts of the world. They can rain from here until next week and nothing changes. Shem what's happening in California, you have these forest fires, nothing ends them other than the miracle. Literally, I, I look at some of this stuff, it's like I think, wow, Goodbye, California. What are you going to do? Like it's just, it just seems like it's never going to end. So it says here, the Avdi says that the, uh, the the fire on the altar never got extinguished by the rain. Why? Because if it was ever extinguished by the rain, Chas Shalom, one of the people would say, Ah, so the rain is more powerful than the Korbanot, then Kedusha, then going to the Bet Mikdash, then going to the Beknesset, then talking to Hashem. Then, yeah, the rain is better. Let's pray to the rain now. Maybe the rain is God. Maybe if it rains, we don't have to go to Shul. 
Maybe if it rains, we have to go to shul. Patur be mitzvot. You know, as soon as it rains, oh no, see, it rains. I don't have to go to shul. Why don't you have to go to shul? It's raining. So say, Rabotai, rain or shine, you have to go to shul. Why? Rain does not extinguish the fire. The fire meaning the fire inside us also. But next thing it says, why the, why the, uh, uh, what's another thing that we learned from this? Rav Chaim Ivolozin says there's also something that you can understand. The Geshem, rain, is also referring to Gashmiut. It's also referring to physicality, materialism. It says, make sure, make sure that the Gashmiut, the, the materialism in the world, never takes out the fire inside you for Torah. You never have an excuse to not learn Torah. You never have an excuse to not do mitzvot. You never have an excuse to look at your phone in the middle of the shoe and think that I'm a retard and I'm not seeing you right now. You never have an excuse to do such a thing. You never have an excuse. You have to learn Torah in a shiur Torah. You never have an excuse to look at your phone, your stock portfolio, or your bitcoins. You never have an excuse for that. So, the key rabotai is to understand that I see, because you're right in front of me. But aside from that, it understand that your fire inside you has to be lit. The fire inside you has to be lit. The wind from the fire, the wind from the uh, the wind around, did not disperse the vertical column of smoke that came from the altar. Now, the amazing thing that we read every single day. In Korbanot. We read about the Korbanot, that they took this incense offering every day. We read it twice or three times a day, twice in Shachrit and once in Mincha. Read the Korbanot. And in the Korbanot, they say that you take this incense offering, the Ketoret, and you put different ingredients together and it creates... A smoke that's reach nichoch le Hashem, that's pleasing to Hashem, not pleasing because he's enjoying the smell, but because he's pleasing because you are doing what he says. Now it says here that it created a pillar. Created a pillar, and this pillar, this pillar, even if strong wind, hurricanes, tornadoes, Irma, whoever showed up, doesn't change. The pillar is like a stone pillar. The pillar is like you have a stone coming from the Bet HaMikdash all the way to Shemaim. Nothing can move it. This is one of the miracles. One of the miracles. Even on windy days, the pillar stands still. Now, every day, we read this Korbanot, the incense offering, the Ketoret, but most people miss one of the greatest things that you could ever understand. And this is one of my first big chidushim. And probably still my favorite. Amash, worth coming to the world just to understand what it really means. Now, you read all this Torah, you see, Vayomer Hashem el Moshe, Kach Samim Natav Ushchet Vechebena Samim Ulevena Zaka Bad Hashem said to Moshe Rabbeinu, in the book of Exodus chapter uh, 3, 
It says, uh, take for you spices, balm, onkia, galbanum, and all these different types of spices to make an incense offering. And he gives them exact details of who, what, when, and how. Now we are not, we are forbidden from trying. First of all, we don't know how. Even if we have the ingredients, we don't know the exact amounts. Now, for anyone that wants to be a hero and go against the Shem's will and still try to make it, you should know what it also says in the same tefillah, in the same place. It says if anyone makes a mistake with the ketoret, someone who makes a mistake with the ketoret, it's karet. It's din karet. What's karet? The same punishment you get for Chilul Shabbat. Same punishment that you get for Chilul Shabbat. You understand? So now, after we have the ingredients, it says, okay, you have the ingredients, good, Chazak Baruch. But it says, Rabbi Natan, Rabbi Yehuda, both have the same opinion. They said, if someone makes a mistake, make a mistake, they forget one of the ingredients. They forget one. One. They forget one ingredient. Or they don't forget the ingredients. They put all of them. But they put the wrong amount. On one of them, they have all of them. Everything is good, perfect. It's, they need one gram, you put one gram. You do one and a half gram, one and a half gram. Three grams, three, no problem. They, everything is exact. But one of them, it's not one gram, it's like 0.99 of a gram. It's a little tiny mistake. Tiny, tiny. Small. It says, Chayav Mita, death penalty. Oh, We read this in tefillah three times a day. Chayav Mita, just fire the guy. Exactly, why would anybody want to do this job? But on top of that, why are you so harsh? Why machmir? Why you guys, satmir? What happened to you? What's going on with you guys? Why kill him? Just tell the guy, listen, thank you very much for your service, you're fired. No severance. And then try again. No, Hashem says no good. Okay, fine. We'll go. I'm not going to kill the guy. I'm not going to kill the guy. But the Chachamim, the Tanaim Akdoshim says, Chayav Mita. Death penalty. Not one opinion. Everyone's opinion. He made a mistake. Miskin. How many times do we make mistakes against Hashem? Every day. Hashem doesn't kill us every day. Oh Hashem, he's not killing us every day. But here you're saying you made a mistake with this you have a serious problem. Now I look, it seems like a tiny mistake, but it says it's a big mistake. Such a big mistake. Not only it's din karet, it's chayav mita, death penalty. They killed the guy. Why? So one time, Rabotai, I had this chidush a few years ago. Mamash, worth a million dollars a day. I'll give it to you for free, as long as you remember what it says. When you read Korbanot. Now, when they made these incense offering, the Mishnah in Avot, right here, is telling you what's the end product. What's the end product? Smoke came out. Smoke came out, reached the sky. Reached the sky. Wind comes, nothing changes. Wind comes, nothing changes. So now, what does this mean? What is the actual effect of this pillar that we have in Bet HaMikdash? Let's think about it. Who sees it? Who sees this? Three types of people. Three types of people. First guy's in the camp. He's in a desert with everyone else, millions of people in the camp. But you know, sometimes your wife yells at you. The kids don't want to clean the dishes. The, the rabbi uh, gave you a little bit of a uh, musar you didn't like. 
Sometimes you have some issues. You got fired. You have some little emunah issues. You have some little emunah issues. He says you look up. Oh, Hashem is in control. Why? This is 100% a miracle. So you see Hashem at work. It's not like a hidden miracle or a miracle you have to look for. It's mamash, a miracle in front of your eyes. There's a wind. There's Irma, the wind over here. And the thing's not moving. It's Hashem at work. Baruch Hashem, you don't have emunah issues anymore. Why? If Hashem can figure out to get the wind, not to touch the, uh, the, the, the smoke here, and it reaches all the way to the sky, when I can barely light a li- the fire for a barbecue, that I'm sure Hashem can find me a new job, I'm sure Hashem can teach my kids better musar, I'm sure Hashem could uh, calm my uh, rabbi down a little bit to, to, to tell me he loves me more. I'm sure I can figure those other things out. Hashem, I'm sorry for having any doubts. That's the first guy. The second guy, the second guy, second guy saw it, second guy miskin. When he had the Amunai issues, he didn't, he didn't look up. He just left. He's like, he's just one of these people, we got so much rage. He said, the hell with it, and he just left. You know, one of those people, they just they don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about it, they just run out of the house. Like a little mouse, they run. Okay, he ran away. But you know, after a while, you run, you get tired. What, what do you do when you get tired? You look back. How long have I gone? He's in the mountains already. He's looking back, and he sees Am Yisrael in the camps, in the desert, millions of them. You can't miss it. See millions of them over there at the camps, this, that, that. And he sees the pillar of smoke. He says, wow, you know what? Judaism is not just about the Jews. Judaism really is about Hashem and me. Judaism does not depend on the Jewish people. Judaism depends on you and Hashem. If you do the will of Hashem, you're okay. Whether they do it or not is not your problem. Of course it says, everyone's responsible for each other. But bottom, bottom line, if they are all the Shaim, they don't want to do anything. They want to wear Abu Dazra on their head. They want to drive on Shabbat. They want to eat non-kosher. They want to steal. They want to do all these different things. You do tshuva, you're okay. You okay? He says, I see the pillar and I realize... It's a miracle. What do you mean a miracle? Hashem is in control. He goes back to the camp. So the first guy had emunah issues. You gave him chizuk. Second guy almost left the derech. He did kiruv. You brought him back. He did tshuva. Who's the third guy that sees it? The goyim. The goyim. The goyim would look from far away and always wonder, why is Hashem do so many miracles for Am Yisrael. Why does he make them Nobel Prize winners? Why does he make this little country make so much noise? I mean, technically, there's statistical statistical error. We should never hear about the Jews. There's, what, 15, 20 million of them? How many? Out of 8 billion people? It's not even a rounding error. When you say 8 billion, you don't literally mean 8 billion. It's probably 7.96 billion. So you round off the extra 40 million to just say 8 billion. Meaning that the 20 million is not even a rounding error. You should never hear about any Jew. There's many countries that are much greater in size than Israel. You never heard of them before. Jew, every day is in the news. Every single day we're in the news. Every single day we're in reports. Every single day we achieve something. Every single day we do something somebody knows about and it's reported everywhere. How? The goyim always asking, why are they rich? Why are they smart? Why are they this? Why? Why are they so confident? 
And then they see the pillar of smoke of the Beta Mikdash or the tabernacle. They say, ah, they're doing the will of Hashem. They're doing the will of Hashem. Look, we're not doing any smoke. What do we do? We're worshiping an idol. We're worshiping a Buddha. We're worshiping uh, some idiot that died 2,000 years ago. What are we doing, the Goim? What are we doing? Nothing. We're investing into businesses, into money, into material, and doing all of the things that God's giving us, we're using against them. The Jews, at least, they're doing the will of Hashem. Look, they made a smoke. They, they have a bet to Mikdash. That's why Hashem does what they want. Hashem gives them a reward. So what do you do now? You had Emunah with the first guy. Kiruv with the second guy. With the Goim, Kiddush Hashem. You sanctify Hashem's name. So here we see three good, amazing things from one Maseh, from the smoke. What's, that's not the Kiddush, though. That's just the reality. What's the Kiddush? The Kiddush is what happens when you make a mistake. Why does Rabbi Natan, Rabbi Yehuda say Chayav Mita? Why is Hashem saying it's Din Karet? Karet, it's one of the 36 worst possible sins you could do on earth. Why? For the same exact consequences. Just the opposite. The Ramban, Allah Shalom, says when there is a mistake in the incense, it becomes an Esh Zara. What is an Esh Zara? Foreign fire. What does it mean, foreign fire? Foreign fire means fire, but no smoke. The incense makes a fire. It's a natural thing. You put it on thing, it makes a fire. No smoke, though. The pillar doesn't reach the sky. Okay, so what? Let's see what happens now. The first guy that had emunah issues because of the kids, because of his wife, because of his rabbi, because of his son, because of his this, because of his dad, and he lost the job and everything else, he looks up, he sees nothing. He looks up, he sees nothing. He was looking for something and he found nothing. Shem the guy's going to go off the derech now. The guy is going to get worse. He went from bad to worse now. He's going to go off the derech. He's going to go to the mountains now. He's leaving. I've had it. I'm not doing it anymore. It's too much for me. It's it. Ha! Who? He's done. You just lost the guy. Shem Maybe he's not going to come back. Second guy, he already left. He turns around. He turns around. What does he see? Nothing. He sees the Jews. But you don't see, you don't, no, he doesn't see Hashem. He doesn't see the smoke. He doesn't see the miracles. He says, oh yeah, that's why I left, because of all these people that were doing that and this to me. Good decision. I'm continuing. You lose a Jew forever. Shem Echem. Third, third is the Goyim. The Goyim look up and they say, why does Hashem, why does God, why does God make so many miracles for this nation, this little tiny nation? Why does He make so many miracles for them? They look up, they also see nothing. And now they say, maybe God's making a mistake. Maybe there's no God. Now we went, instead of doing chizuk for emunah, Kiruv for the Rechukim and Kiddush Hashem in front of the Goim, we've achieved the exact opposite. Instead of Chizuk, the guy got off. He's gone. 
Instead of Kiruv, we just now lost a Jew. When you lose a Jew, it's like you destroyed the entire world. And when you have a Chilul Hashem, according to the Torah, for Chilul Hashem, Chayav Mita. Chilul Hashem, death penalty. This is why Rabotai, Rabbi Natan, Rabbi Yehuda says, you make a mistake with the incense offering, it's death penalty. Why? It's Chilul Hashem. You lost a Jew. You made others weaker. It's a constant, an outcome for your actions. It's not that we just care about the ingredient because we're making a shakshuka. It's because what you're doing has significance. People are going to see it. People are going to watch it. People depend on it. But instead of doing Kiddush Hashem, all you created was Esh Zara. You made a foreign fire, not a fire of Am Yisrael. We lost people because of you. We lost the honor of Hashem because of you. And you expect to live? You're lucky that you were even given a chance. But once you do such big sins, there's no tshuva. Only tshuva is in a hot place. So, Rabotai, you read this three times a day. Three times a day. When I had this chidush, I mean, when you get a chidush and it sounds right, you get really excited. But you have to double check. I asked my rabbi, my rabbi was amazed. He said, I read it a million times. Never had the same thing. Baruch Hashem. Everybody has their own chidush in Shemaim. But I still always had a safik. Who am I to really get a chidush? This is a few years ago. I still nobody today. But still, back then I was less than a nobody. Hey, who am I to get a chidush? No one else said I'm, I told my rab, somebody else probably said it. He goes, I'm telling you, I checked, no one said it. I said, my chidush? He goes, it's your chidush. But I always had a doubt. Always had a doubt. I mean, yeah, maybe... Well, sometimes you get gifts, sometimes you get spoiled. So Hashem apparently liked my chidush. How do I know? He didn't speak to me. I'm not Moshe Rabbeinu, Baruch Hashem. I don't have that job. But he did speak to me in a different way. How? For the next few days, I'm having this doubt in my mind. Should I say it in this year or should I not say it in this year? I'm not sure, even though I have the okay of my Rav. Even though it agrees with the Chachamim, it agrees with the Ramban, it agrees with the Mishnah, it agrees. It's not contradicting anyone. Still, it's me. Who am I, Bechlat, to have a Chidush? I go out to do a little shopping for, for, for Shabbat for, for, for my wife and I. And my parents at the time are visiting. So there's witnesses to the story. They're visiting. We just moved to Florida maybe six months uh, before that or a few months before that. Anyway, as while I'm gone, one of my students comes to my house and he drops off a gift. Drops off a gift. I come home. As soon as I come home, my mom says, Hey, look, uh, Nissan, give this to you. I look at this. I call, before I even analyze what just happened here, why is he giving me a gift? I don't need anything. What's, what's, it's, it's, it's a nice picture. It's a nice picture. I asked Nissan, Nissan, what is it? You dropped this off. You wanted to, what do you want to do with it? You no, no, it's a gift for you. You know, he's in a moving business. He's in a moving business. Sometimes people leave, they, they give you stuff they don't want. Or sometimes they uh, leave it behind and you can't reach them, for whatever. Point is that the people that he was moving that day say they don't want this. Apparently, it belonged to somebody that died already or whatever. They didn't want it anymore. If you want, take it. And he's already had this in his truck for months, six, seven months. Meaning before I even moved to Florida. 
So he thought about me that Friday. He said, oh, you know what? Maybe Yaron's going to like this. And he decides to give me this. He decides to give me this. I'm not home. He drops it off. He gives it to my uh, wife and my uh, mom that's in the house. And he leaves. I said, okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it. And then I go look at what this painting is. Now, this painting is not a normal painting. What is this painting? It's not a painting. It's a drawing of the Bet Migdash. But it's not just the drawing of the Bet Migdash. There's many drawings of the Bet Migdash. The drawing of this Bet Migdash is made from words, meaning someone drew the lines, but it's actually words. What are these words? All of the alachot from the Rambam of the Bet Migdash. Regarding, okay, this is nice, but we're not finished. What is the what is this specific alakha? What is this specific diktoret? The ktoret, the incense offering the ktoret, this is drawing is all about the ktoret. And you see that everything is his words except the ktoret is a pillar of gold. You come see it in my house, Mamash, I look at this, every time I see it, I remember it. He gives me a... God bless him. Different part of the story. The point is, Rabotai, when Hashem likes your chidush, he'll give you a message. So now you see that this ktoret that you read about three times a day has much more significance than we thought before. So the next thing is, is that we are up to Okay, we are up to the next one, which is No disqualification found in the Omel. No disqualification was found in the Omel. No disqualification was made, was found in the uh, two loaves. No disqualification was found in the showbread. Each one of them for different reasons. There was a limited amount of barley that was cut the night before and offered uh, in the morning. Now, if there was a ritual defect in the omel, this is not something you could easily replace. When can you replace it? A year later. Consequence of it would deer. The things that could disqualify it would be making it, if it becomes tameh, or if uh, they... Uh, it wasn't placed um, the right amount. The Kohen did not scoop it with the right amount. Or if uh, it was taken out of the courtyard of the temple. Or he didn't do it before sundown. Meaning there was many, many reasons of why it could become disqualified. And this did not happen even a single time. Same thing with the two loaves of bread. The grain of the new crop was only permitted to be used for the temple offering only after... The two loaves were offered, meaning you cannot use the grain until these two loaves were offered. Meaning it's a big deal. If there's a mistake, if it's disqualified by some type of defect, like the other one before it, can you just fix it? No, you have to wait a whole year. Meaning the whole nation has to suffer for a year. It's not a, it's a big deal. Same thing with Lechem Panin, the 12 loaves of bread were baked each Friday and put on this special table in the, the Beit Mikdash, and they stayed hot and fresh until the next Friday. 
The Kwanim would take them and eat them, and they would replace them with new ones. So for a week, they're staying hot and fresh like you just took them out of the oven. And the showbread miraculously remained fresh and hot throughout the entire week for every single year during the Beit HaMikdash. You're talking about almost 830 years. Gemara Masechet Menachot 96b. This was Mamash Maase Elokim. We also see it in a, in a, in a uh, Torah, in Exodus, Sefer uh, Shmot 25.30, in Leviticus 24.5. Mamash, you see Hashem at work. You have bread, I mean, five minutes after you take it out of the oven, it cools off. Ten minutes, it's already stale. Here, a week later, it's fresh like it just got out of the oven. So, you're up, Mamash, you're seeing miracle after miracle after miracle. Miracles became nature. The next part is, Abotai, is that the people crowded together and throughout every day, they'd come, they'd pray and so on. People would stand really close to each other, but then it came to the time to bow. Bow to Hashem all the way to the floor. When they bowed, there would still be four amot, six feet of space somehow, would be created out of nothing. Everybody could pray with a little bit, you know, when you pray, you're not supposed to pray completely quiet, like most people do. You're actually supposed to pray loud enough for only for yourself to hear it. Not loud enough to interfere with anyone else. Not loud enough for anyone to hear you. But loud enough for you to hear yourself. That's how you're supposed to pray. So it says that everyone prayed and no one heard them except themselves. Meaning they, they had enough space to move, to bow, and to pray in the Beit HaMikdash. But, when there was, but still, I mean, this is doesn't matter if you put 10,000 people there, a million people there, 5 million people there, there's always space. It's like the Beit HaMikdash is, was not part of nature. It was not part of nature, whatever you put it. Because you look at some of the pictures, it looks kind of small. You look at some of the, of the, the, the amount of, you know, area is big. But the place where they would pray, it kind of looks, I mean, it's big. But, I mean, how many people can you fit? 5,000, 10,000, 50,000, 100,000. I mean, we're talking about, if you look at the Midrashim, how many, how many people were actually living in Yerushalayim? We're talking about hundreds of millions even if you want to be uh, somewhat, uh, you know, no, no, only three million, only five. Okay, three million, fine. Where are three million people going to pray? How are you going to fit? You look at the midrashim of what happened, what the years of the Beit Hamikdash. I mean, we did the math one time, and like you said, it was well over a billion people. Some estimates say even more than that, a thousand times more than that. The point I'm trying to say to you guys is that there was a lot of people. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't have to make sense. Why? The Creator creates the world. The Creator creates the rules for the world too. And to such an extent that no one ever had to be worried about space. And no one ever said, oh, this uh, city is too small for me. No one ever said such a thing. Meaning, even emotionally, people were happy. It wasn't just physically, emotionally. Now, The Gemara in Masechet Sotah, page 5a, says that there is a situation that Hashem says a person can go from having all the space in the world, meaning that Hashem can come and be there. Big space, small space. Hashem doesn't acquire space. Hashem is space. He's everything. But a person could literally... 
make God go away in a second. Second. Why? He tells there's no room for both of us. What do you mean there's no room? You're the whole world. You can fit in anything. There's no room for both of us. How? The Gemara Masichet Sota, page 5, says anytime a person is Baal Ga'ava, Hashem says, him and I cannot occupy the same space. Toivat Hashem kol gvalev. Anyone that is prideful, arrogant person, Hashem says, he's disgusting in my eyes. How disgusting? Disgusting to the point that I cannot be in the same place as him. Now, Rabbi Elimelech Mijensk, we talked about last night, was one time, is, by the way, a couple of hundred years ago, he died in the 1700s, 1780, 1789. He was trying to raise some money for a mikveh. But you know, sometimes when, when you don't need money, everybody says, listen, if you need something, let me know. If you need something, yell, email. the guy doesn't need anything, but you say that. If you need something, let me know. Just give me a call. I'm there. I'm there for you. Oh, no, no, I don't need anything right now. Okay, I'm But if you need something, let me know. One day you need something, like, hello, I need something. Oh, I'm sorry for that. I'm busy. Call me back next week. Next week, he's on vacation for a year. He's gone. Next week, oh, I just, I just, uh, you know, I just shut down my business. I don't make any money anymore. What do you mean? The, the building has your name on. Yeah, I didn't sell it yet. When I sell, I'll give it to you. How long is it going to take to sell? It? Eh, probably another two, five, six, twenty years from now, I'll sell. It. But I need the money now. You said, you said if I need something, call you. For the you should have used it when I told you. You missed out. So anyway, sometimes the people they run away. They run away from mitzvot. They run away from mitzvot. They run away from mitzvot. They think their money's worth something. So Rabbi Elimelech Mijensk taught us something from Olam Ayemit. Olam Ayemit, he gave us some information. He came to these people and he said to them, Rabotai, I need money for a mikveh. Everyone all of a sudden ran away like little cockroaches. You know, cockroaches, they party, 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 turn on a light, everybody runs away. Everybody ran away with cockroaches. He said, hey, hold on. He sees everybody's running away. Hey, Rabotai, listen, I promise you, anyone that donates to the mikveh, I promise you, when I go up to Shemaim, I am going to assure you, you're going to get money from Shemaim. You become richer than what you already are. Everybody says, oh, it's kind of a good deal. He's a, it's a good deal. Okay, everybody says, okay, let's chip in. 20,000, 20,000, 20,000, a few hundred thousand dollars. They open a nice mikveh, Baruch Hashem. He died that year. Everybody thinks, oh, Baruch Hashem, he died. Instead of saying, Baruch Hashem, he died. Why? They want to be richer than already rich. That's how people think. They're thinking, oh, instead of we just lost Gdolador, they're thinking we're going to be rich now. That's why it says, no one ever dies with even half of what his desires are. When he has desires and he doesn't understand the value of things, he's never going to have enough. He has 100,000, he wants 200,000. He has 500,000, he wants a million. He says, no, no, for that, all I need, all I need is a million dollars. Once I have a million dollars, I'm finished. As soon as he says a million dollars, he doesn't know you anymore. Why? He needs two million. No, no. As soon as I get to two million, I'm going to study at the caller all the time. As soon as he gets to two million, he doesn't even know what a caller is anymore. Why? He has to manage the two million. For that, you want me to lose the two million? How hard it was to get the two million? I can't just lose it. I have to manage it now. So now all these people are saying, oh, okay, we're going to be rich, we're going to be rich, we'll be rich. Little by little, they start losing money. They start doing the, they start losing money. They start talking bad about Rabbi Elimelech. I said, oh, 
Maybe here he was a big rabbi, but over there he's a small rabbi. Here he was a big rabbi, but over there he's nobody. Rabbi Elimelech knew that this has to do with Kvod Torah, not his Kvod. He came from Shemaim to the head rabbi in a dream. And he told him, tell these Gvirin, these people that donated to the Mikveh, tell them, I'm sitting here with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. I'm sitting here with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, and Kisei Kavod is not far from us. We're learning Torah together. And I know I've been here for a while, and they haven't become rich. But you have to understand, there's a little bit of a problem. What's the problem? He says, it's not, it's not nice to talk about something disgusting in Shemaim. Money is considered disgusting in Shemaim. It's considered disgusting. No one talks about money. What do you want me to embarrass myself now? I have to talk. So I'm waiting for the right moment for Hashem to like, give me room to like, talk about something disgusting because in Shemaim, it smells bad. Who wants to talk about this? something? It's like talking about used toilet paper, he says. Talking about money in Shemaim is like talking about used toilet paper. So I'm embarrassed to talk about it with Hashem. Hey, Hashem, these people, I promised them some money. Is there someone to give me the toilet paper after they use it? What should I do with this? What should I do with this? Tell them, don't worry about me. I'm with Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov next to the Kisei Kavod, but I have to find an opening to talk to Hashem about toilet paper now because I made a promise for Kavod Torah. People think their money is worth so much they don't realize that all they have is money and they can't, they're not even doing anything good with it. They're worrying about investments and retirements and all this shtuyot instead of giving themselves even a chance to get to Olam Ha'emet in a good shape. Hashem only gave you money because no, there is no other way for you to get to Olam Ha'emet. If Hashem gave you money, He's not giving you money so you can buy cars and houses and, and Bentleys and watches. If you're doing that, you are a fool. Why? Hashem says, listen, you're not a chacham, you're not a tzaddik, you're not really doing much. So at least I'm going to give you a chance to get to Olam Abba. Here's a bunch of money. Give tzedakah. Here's some money. Go give tzedakah. Go help some Jews come back to me. It's your only chance. What do you do? You go buy Bentleys. You go buy watches. You go buy cars. You go buy stuyot. You get front row tickets for some football game. You spend ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars as people don't have food to eat for Shabbat. As people don't have food to eat for Shabbat, you spend twenty thousand dollars on a front row ticket for a football game. Aside from the fact that you're not allowed to go to such events, on top of it, you allowed yourself to spend twenty thousand dollars on a football game, but your neighbor doesn't have food for Shabbat. They shut off his electricity. The Ben Torah that's studying morning and night doesn't have uh, chicken for the chicken soup. I know a guy. He didn't have chicken for chicken soup. He asked the other Avrech, he asked the other Avrech, he's like, listen, you had chicken this uh, Shabbat? Yeah. He goes, when you finish the chicken, don't throw it out. Give me the bones. Give me the bones. Why? I need to have some flavor for Sunday for my kids for the chicken soup. Rabotai, this is a real story. I know the person. We give, send money to Yerushalayim every week. Every week we try to send money to Yerushalayim. Avrichim Kedoshim, learn Torah. Why? Not because I feel bad for them. You think I feel bad for them? They have Olam Abba. You think I feel bad for them? I feel bad for me. I feel bad for everyone else. 
It's our only chance to get to Olam Abba is to help these people, to help Amisa come back to Hashem. Not because I feel bad for them. You think I'm worried about him not having chicken in this world? Who cares about the chicken in this world? Who cares about the chicken in this world? If you think that we, I feel bad for them, you have no idea. Feel bad for us. We have no idea what to do with money. The guy gets $500 a week, he thinks he's supposed to spend 400 of it on food. And the other hundred on, uh, I don't know, on, on, on tickets to some baseball game. He doesn't realize Hashem gave him that money, so you maybe have a chance to Olam Abba. But, oh no, I make only 5000 a month, uh, so I'll, I'll do, I'll, I'll send 50 bucks. What am I doing $50? Gas, gas to come to the lectures more than $50. What am I doing $50? The point is, Rabotai, people get money, they have no idea what to do with it. Some people are so rich, they have a lot of money as far as that. But unfortunately, they're poor at the same time. Why? All they have is money. As soon as they get to Allah, my man, they're going to tell them, listen, I'm sorry, all you have is toilet paper that's used. We can't use that here. You have to throw it out. You have to throw it out. Yeah, but I spent 90 years acquiring it. Yes, we're sorry. We're sorry. It's used toilet paper. A person came to a chacham and he said, listen, I uh, appreciate what you do, but uh, right now I'm not really ready to donate. So misken the chacham, I know this person. Chacham, was looking to get was looking to get his book published. He has a book written already, but he has to print it. So his main guy wasn't donating. So he's scared, what is he gonna do? So he's uh, goes to see another person, but for a completely different reason, just he runs into another person. Saying hello, you know, they know each other. And uh, the guy says to him, so how's everything? How's, uh, you guys, what are you working on? He goes, oh, I'm working on my, uh, I have a book that's ready, but I'm waiting for it to get uh, some money for it. He goes, ah, I don't do things like that. I don't donate to things like this. Now the guy, the Avrech, is scared. He wasn't even looking for money from this guy. He knows this guy doesn't donate. But the guy opened the door for him. How did he open the door? He goes, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't donate for books. I donate for Sifre Torah. I'm actually right now about to donate a lot of money to, to get another Sefer Torah for the Beknesset. So the Avrech was Tamit Chacham. He says, you do realize that it's a much bigger obligation and a much bigger mitzvah to donate, to publish a Sefer of Shailot V'Tshuvot, questions and answers, a book of Torah than a Sefer Torah. You realize this? He says, Mapitam, are you crazy? Mapitam, Sefer Torah, it's our Torah, it's our five books of Moses, we use it every uh, Monday, Thursday, Shabbat, on Chagim, it's Kodesh, if it falls, everybody has to fast, all of a sudden, it's Chacham, no, all the He says, be that as it may, to take the same money and invest it into a Sefer that actually tells you gets people to do tshuva, gets people to learn Torah, much bigger mitzvah, much bigger obligation than a Sefer Torah that's $100,000. He says, can you show me in a book? Can you show me what you're saying? 
if you can show me what you're saying as an actual halacha, I'll give you all the money for your book. He says, no problem. He goes, he gets the book, he shows him the halacha on the spot. The guy paid for the entire book. He wasn't even expecting, he wasn't even expecting this guy to donate. He was just saying hello. But sometimes Hashem says, listen, I'm going to give you your, 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 your salvation from a place you never think of it. You never think of it. The miracles are going to come from places you're never going to think of it. You're never going to think of it. They got their money. They got their money. Whether they got the Lamba or not, I don't know. Now, now, we have to connect all of what we just talked about for however long it's been to the parasha that we're in. Kabutai, parashat Yitro is full of miracles. Now we just talked about ten huge miracles that Bnei Yisrael had in the Bet HaMikdash. In parashat Shavua, there's no end. There's no end to the miracles. There's no end. Whether it's the Ten Commandments or everything that happened in between or after and so on. But I want to talk about a miracle that maybe you didn't notice. We talked about it, we touched on it a little bit, but not so much. The Chidush Rabotai is worth, I think it's priceless. I think it's priceless. Vaishmaitro. Vaishmaitro, Kohen Midian, Choten Moshe, et kol asher asa Elohim lemoshe u leYisrael, amor ki otzi Adonai et Yisrael mimitzrayim. Yitro, the minister of Midian, the father-in-law of Moshe, heard everything that God did to Moshe and to Israel, his people, that Hashem had taken Israel out of Egypt. Last night we talked about this and we said that Yitro heard and that was enough for him to act. But the question is, what did he hear? What did he hear? The Midrash in Me'am Loez says something extraordinary. He says, Yitro heard about Milchemet Amalek. He heard about the war that Amisel had with Amalek, which was at the end of last week's parasha. Amalek decided to go attack him. He heard about the war of Amalek, Neged Israel, and he decided, oh, I'm going to go convert. If anything, you heard somebody's attacking, you run away. He says, no, 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 I'm going to go and convert. How does this make any sense? Why didn't it say he heard about the miracles of Egypt? Big miracles in Egypt. He heard about the miracles of Yamsuf, the Sea of Reeds, Shem split the ocean, 12 different things, fruits came out, clean water, all the things we talked about. No! He said he heard about Amalek, he wanted to convert. Before that, when he heard about Mitzrayim, and he heard about Yamsuf, and he heard about all those things, he said, I'm going to become a Girtushav. I'm going to become a righteous Noahide. That's what the Midrash says. I'm going to become a righteous Noahide. I'm going to go join them, but I'm going to become a righteous Noahide. But after he heard about Amalek attacking, he says, I'm going to convert and be a Girtzedek. I'm going to become a righteous Jew. What does one thing have to do with the other? Why? It's supposed to be the opposite, if anything. Palestinians are attacking us. You're going to go convert now? For what? 
החידוש, רבותיי, is the following. שבע ברכות של בן אחותי הרב ירון ראובן, שליטה, ארגון בעזרת השם, להפצת דרשה לשבע ברכות, מורי, מוריי ורבותיי, אנחנו נמצאים בשבע ברכות של שתי נשמות שהיו שבויים בידי הסיטרא אחרא. The following letter is a letter that was the drasha and my seven brachot that Arav Chaim Kachlon, Rabbi Ephraim's father, said in the seven brachot. And he says, this seven brachot, after the conversion of my wife, we did a whole wedding, we went to Israel, they celebrated with us, do seven brachot, one of the greatest experiences of my entire life. And he gave a drasha, he gave a lecture, Rav Chaim. He says, this Sheva Barachot is, is different. It's different than others. Why? Because these two neshamot were held hostage by the Sitra Acha himself. These two neshamot, they're here celebrating with us. They were held hostage. Torah v'yadut v'od echad ayta shvuya. במשך אלפי שנים מאז בריאת העולם ואחת הייתה שבויה בערך כשלושים שנה. He says one of them was a hostage for thousands of years since the creation of the world while the other one has been a hostage for approximately 30 years. כתוב בספרים הקדושים, כשאשר האדם הראשון חטא, ניתנה רשות לסיטרא אחרא, לצד הרע שאנחנו מתכוונים, מכירים אותו בתור היצר הרע שמחטיא את בני האדם. לקחת כמה נשמות גדולות לצידו, ואלה הן הנשמות של הגרים. He says, since the sin of אדם הראשון, the יצר הרע was given a right to take big נשמות, and hold them hostage. And work for him. And these neshamot are the neshamot of the converts. Kol ger amiti shemitgayer u neshama gdola shenifchera al yedei ha-yetzara lakachat ota l'tzad shelo. Velachen megerim yatsu gdolei Yisrael. It's every real convert. that converts is a big neshama that was selected by the Satan himself, by the Yetzirah himself, as an employee, meaning a general for him, to work for him. And this is why many of G'dolei Yisrael, many of the giants throughout all of Am Yisrael's history, have been converts. Itro, Ruth, Onkelos, Agel, רבי עקיבא היה בן גרים, רבי מאיר היה מזרעו של נירון, קיסר שנשלח. Giants, he's mentioning יתרו from our parasha. Ruth, the Moabite, the Safta of the Mashiach. Onkelos, the convert. רבי עקיבא, who was son of converts. רבי מאיר בעל הנס, who was from the uh, seed of נירון, the Caesar.
they were so these neshamot were not just regular neshamot. The the uh, the uh, Niron, his job what was he, was he, was he just a regular Caesar? No, he was the Caesar that his job was to destroy Yerushalayim. But in the end, he actually ended up running away and actually converted, and from him came out Rabbi Meir Baranes. Itro was a Kohen Itro was the uh, Pope. Wasn't just a regular uh, idol worshiper. He was the Pope. He was the biggest. Onkelos was another example of a convert that converted. After he heard about the uh, Yamsuf. And he continues talking about him. It's a very, very long letter. But he continues talking about things that these converts have, Baruch Hashem, that uh, if someone truly understands what a convert is, you see why Hashem blessed them 36 different times. In the Torah, give them special protection. And many of G'dolei Israel, whether it's the ones he's mentioned, or Shmaya Naftalion, Many before them, many after them. Mashiach comes from a convert. So, the amount of schut that a person has as a Jew is extraordinary. The amount of power that he has is extraordinary. A righteous convert, on the other hand, sometimes could be even more. Simply because... Just like he has the ability to do significant things in Kedusha, he can do quite the opposite in Tumah. This is why the Gemara says that the converts are like a skin disease for the nation. And the Mephashim says, why is it like a skin disease? He says, if they're good, if they're good, then they remind us how we're not doing enough. You see some of these righteous converts, you're like, Chatan, Avinu, Pashan. Why? But you only did Tshuva. He goes, yeah, but like next to him, I'm a Chiloni. Next to him, I'm not doing anything. This guy is in, lives in a Beknesset. Reads, studies, this, no, ah, unbelievable. On the other hand, when they go off the Derech, when they decide they want to become their own rabbis, when they decide they want to make videos against rabbis, when they decide that they're going to just decide to do different things, or they non-stop complain, then the Gemara says they're a skin disease. Why? They're mamash a nuisance. They're a nuisance. They bother the people, and they're a walking chilul Hashem. It's better off for them to stay not Jewish. So, this parasha, this parasha, I'll read more of it in other lectures, but you guys get the point. Of Chaim gave us big chidush here from the Zohar. But this parasha, we hear about one of the names. We hear about Yitro. Technically, the first big convert. The biggest convert. On this list, in general, we just got Matan Torah. He's the first official convert. And it says all he had to do is Vaishma. But 
He didn't decide to convert at first. Initially, he wanted to be a Noahite. He only decided to convert after he heard about the war of Amalek. Why? The Midrash and Me'am Loez says that initially he was very scared. Because he heard about the people of Israel for many years. He already knew them from the time that Moshe Rabbeinu was a child. It wasn't a chidush for him. He knew their history. But he also knew that in their history, there's been a bad history with converts. When Timna, Timna, the, um, the uh, daughter of, of Esav, I'm sorry, uh, the Timna married the son of Esav, Eliphaz, before she married the son of Esav, she came, she was a queen. She's a queen. And she came to Avram, and he said, convert me. I want to be, uh, I want to be one of you. Avram says, no. She came to Yitzchak. Convert me. Even though there's no conversion like we have after Matan Torah, still, she wanted to become one of the people. She wanted to marry one of the sons. Yitzchak rejected her too. So she says, better to go marry one of the children of Esav than one of the other people. So she went and married Eliphaz. And because, if it wasn't married, we wouldn't be allowed to say it. Because Avram and Yitzchak made a mistake by rejecting her, her son was Amalek. Esav is Amalek because his son Eliphaz, his son was Amalek. Meaning Amalek is the grandson of Esav. Why? Came from, Elif- came from Eliphaz and Timna. Her brother was Lotan. So what does it have to do with Yitro? Hundreds of years later, six, seven hundred years later, what does one thing have to do with the other? The following. When he told heard about Am Yisrael getting the miracles, he says, oh, of course, we always knew that God of Israel is the real God. We always knew. It's not a chidush. But if I want to go become an uh, Israelite, I want to become a Jew, they're going to reject me like they rejected Timnah many years before. So why? Why should I uh, put myself under such a thing? I'm not going to do it. I'll just become a Noahite. I'll join them. I'll be okay. But when he heard that Amalek came and attacked Am Yisrael, he says, this doesn't make any sense. Why? Amalek also heard that Hashem made all these miracles for Am Yisrael. They also heard about the plagues. They also heard about the Yam Suf. What makes them think that they could beat Am Yisrael? If Am Yisrael, the slaves, now became the master, beating the biggest civilization in the world, what makes you people think you're going to beat them, little Amalekis? What do you make you think of it? Meaning, this doesn't make any sense. What is it? Must be a punishment from their God. For what? For not converting Timna. So now that Amalek fought them, this obviously they realize God is punishing them for their ancestors' mistake. So probably now they don't want to make the mistake again. So if I go there to convert, they'll accept me. Yitro says, I'm going to convert then. Rabotai, the whole issue of Amalek, our obligation to destroy Amalek, is something that has a secret within a secret. Yes, the most recent Amalek that we know of for sure was, with a fit description, 
was the Nazis in Machshimam Vizicham. Those Nazis are still alive and well. There's actually someone that just made a uh, documentary that uh, he actually infiltrated the Nazi camps, groups, and so on in America, in Europe, a few other places. He pretended to be one of them. And he recorded it. I saw a clip, short clip, maybe two, three minute clip of different clips that he made as an undercover person. Rabotai, the Nazis are alive and well. Rabotai, the Nazis are not only alive and well, they are prepared for Gogo Magog tomorrow if you just give them the button. Another person, a Baal Tshuva in Israel, or a journalist, did the same exact thing and pretended to be a Muslim. Over several uh, months, or maybe even longer, a few years actually, he pretended to be a Muslim and changed costume, everything else. He speaks Arabic fluently. He used to be a journalist, specifically with terrorists. The terrorists accepted him. He actually says in his personal tshuva story, he did tshuva because of a terrorist. Why? When he came to the uh, terrorist to interview him, he says... You know I want to kill you, right? He says, but I'm just interviewing you. He goes, yeah, but you realize I want to kill you. He goes, yeah, but I'm, you're not going to kill me, right? He goes, maybe. Why? Why do you want to kill me? He goes, you're going against God. What do you care if I'm going against God? Going against God. He's a terrorist, says to him. The guy actually started to keep, start keeping mitzvot. Came back to the same terrorist. He goes, now I have to protect you, he says. Now I have to protect you. Now this guy went and undercover in different mosques, different terror cells all over the world, in the United States, in Europe, in Israel, different places. And now there's like some show that's being published somewhere in Israel, I guess, and online. I don't know if it's out or not. But I also saw a little clip of this. What they're saying, Rabotai, they're ready for Gogo Magog tomorrow. Tomorrow. But they're doing it differently than the Nazis. They said, we're going to win with the same thing that my father heard from somebody 40 years ago. 40 years ago, he went to do business in Belgium and he met some old man. And the old man tells my father, you know, the one thing you have to worry about, you have to worry about these Muslims. He goes, what? We just beat them in a war recently. He goes, no, no, it has nothing to do with the wars. No weapon can beat them. He goes, why not? He says, because they're going to win the battle with their stomachs. They're just going to reproduce, bring more children to the world, and eventually take over. Mamash, it's as if this guy was a prophet. My father doesn't know his name. That's exactly what's happened in the last 40 years if you look at the statistics of the, of the Muslim population. All the little terrorist attacks or anything like that just to get attention. It doesn't mean anything. They've been taking over regardless. Europe is pretty much done especially France and other parts. You go into see some of these clips and what they're saying, what they're prepared to do to Am Yisrael, what they're prepared to do to any of the friends of Israel, they're ready for Gogo Magogo Batai. Amalek, that comes from Esav, and Ishmael, they're ready. They're ready. Now we need a miracle. In reality, we need a miracle. Yitro, Yitro says, you can get some miracles. 
He gets the miracles. Number one, we see that rejecting converts is not exactly the greatest idea in the world. So all of these keilot that are rejecting converts and going against them, you got to think twice. We don't actually have a good history. Just look at the Midrash. Look at the five books of Moses. Look at the Gemara. Look at the 36 different times it says in the Torah what it says about going against converts. But even more so, even more so, Yitro is connected. This conversion story is connected to what? Matan Torah. It's connected to the biggest miracles we've ever seen in history. You want miracles? You want to survive? Gogu Magog? You want all these great things that we just talked about for the last couple of hours? It's time to do tshuva. Every key last to do tshuva. The Hasidim, the Syrians, the uh, Sephardis, the Ashkenazis, the Litvish, the this one, the that one, the secular, the atheist, everyone has to do tshuva. It's the only hope we have. That's the secret. That's the chidush. It's not such a big chidush because it's the same thing we say every single time. Just here has a few different news sources. It's a few different news sources. If you're still connecting everything and you think that you're supposed to enjoy this world so much and worry about buying a bigger house and extending that bigger house to another house and extending that house to another house and then get another car and a bigger navigation system and a bigger ring and a bigger diamond and another football ticket and all those things, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Hashem Barach told you specifically, I made the miracles not because of your mental acumen, not because of your hard work in, 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 on Wall Street or in a, uh, some construction company, not because of that. I made all those miracles that helped you survive against an unbeatable army because of doing tshuva. Amalek was an unbeatable army. They went to war because they knew they can't be beaten. Why? They were magicians, and they knew that they're not going to die. They only sent the soldiers that they knew are not going to die. They're not destined to die that day. It was an unbeatable, unbeatable army. And according to the Midrash, it says, the war between Amalek and Am Yisrael in last week's parasha is bigger than what Gogo Magog is going to be. Can't kill him. Same thing with the terrorists today. You can't beat the terrorists. Why? They just reproduce. You kill one, the wife has six babies the next day. You can't. Why? It's gzera from Shamaim. It's gzera from Shamaim. It's decree from Shamaim. It has nothing to do with the Arabs. They're just being a tool. It has nothing to do with the Christians. Just They're just being a tool. They call themselves Nazis, they call themselves Ishmaelites, they call themselves ISIS. They're just being a tool. Rabotai, they're no different than the scorpion we learned about. They're no different than the scorpion we learned about. When the people came, in when the people came to Rabbi Hanina ben Dosa, he said, there's a big snake that's killing people. There's a big snake killing people. He says, where is this snake? Few people already died. Where's the snake? It's over there in the hole. Rabbi Chayna put his leg inside the hole, waited for the snake to bite his leg, took it out, killed him. He? Nothing. Everyone's watching this. How could this be? What do you have? A uh, Superman? He says something extremely important for us to know. 
It's not the snake that kills. It's the sin. It's not the snake that kills. It's the sin that kills. The Gemara Seraba 33a talks about this specific Maaseh. This Maaseh is relevant to us. What happened before us in previous generations, where people were intermarrying, and that's why we, um, you know, certain Chachamim made a certain Gzerah, Takanah, they said, listen, no more conversions, no more this, no more that. It's no longer valid. It's no longer relevant. And the reason why is because people are intermarrying anyway. And anyone that denies that it's happening in those communities just simply is denying reality. It's happening in those communities too. It's happening in those communities too. How do I know? They call me. They call me and they ask me to help them convert. They ask me to help them uh, do this, do that. Like as if I have a button. Hey, yeah, he's converting. Okay, you're a Jew now. Takes tshuva to do to to get out of this hole. But the problem is that these takanot are hurting people. Why? Because I tell them, listen, you realize that once she or he converts, they're going to throw you out of the keilah. They're not going to accept you there anymore. Because why? They accept me now. They accept you when you're going out with a non-Jew, but they won't accept you if the non-Jew does tshuva in the, in, in, in the, in the keilah. You, you realize the craziness here? I also know a billionaire convert. I know one guy is a billionaire and he's a convert. And he goes to one of these kilot and they accept him though. I wonder why. I wonder why. He's a billionaire. And it's not like it's a secret that he's a convert. Why? He's, 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 he's as black as night. So if you could see, this guy, he's definitely, not, he's definitely, he's not, he's not, he's not, he's not a Syrian. He's not from Syria. So, Abutai, listen. This is not against anyone specific. This is just that Itro is telling us something important. Avot Kedushim, people holier than anything we can even imagine. Torah says they made a mistake not accepting her. Torah says they made a mistake. They made a mistake. Shem Rachem, if they make a mistake, what about us? How many mistakes are we doing every day? How many mistakes are we making every second? But just like Hashem allowed Itro, the ex-pope, to do tshuva and become a ger tzedek, to have sons with Ruach HaKodesh, to get to a point of having a whole parasha, start with him, end with him, his daughter being married to the prophet of all prophets. If he could do tshuva, we could do tshuva. But we have to start looking at things and, uh, and, and realize, okay, listen, this is good, this is no good, this is good, this is no good. Enough with the... Uh, fakeness and for all of those kilos that are going to listen to this and want to kill the messenger it's not going to help you killing the messenger the truth won't change same thing with the wigs the people want to kill me because i showed them the truth about what's happening with the wigs no but you're saying this but you're saying what me saying it's torah saying it. you're not allowed to enjoy Abu it's not my fault i didn't write the torah i didn't write the torah it's time to do tshuva time to do tshuva why the enemy is ready the enemy is ready. Anyone that thinks that this pleasant life that we're living in right now with relative peace, quite a bit of money, 
and all the wonderful things that Amisa is enjoying right now, if this is going to continue because Trump is president or this guy's president and this guy's the lawyer and this guy's the judge and this guy's this, everyone that thinks this is just going to continue and we could just continue coasting, you have to realize Hashem is just giving you every possible opportunity to do tshuva. He's money, no longer a problem. Why? You have plenty of it. Religion, you have freedom of religion everywhere. You could learn Torah any way you want. Access, you could press a button and learn the entire shots. Press a button. You don't even need to buy the books anymore. Just press a button. You can learn Shulet Torah. Truth is available. Yes, it's not everywhere, but it's available, Baruch Hashem. There's no excuses. There's no excuses not to do tshuva. You're going to want to hold on to your sins from the past? You should know. The enemy is ready. The Nazi terror cells, they're everywhere. They're like the cockroaches. They're everywhere, Abutai. There's no protection anywhere. Not in Israel, not in America, not anywhere. Don't even bother looking for buying guns or buying uh, uh, grenades or atomic bombs or depending on some army or depending on some uh, president or depending on anything. Nothing in the world is going to help you against these cockroaches. Nothing. Not the Arabs and not the Nazis. They're both ready. The question is, is are you ready? You being ready meaning, have you done tshuva? Because that's the only thing that's going to help you. Only thing. You're still worrying about looking sexy for the clerk at the, at the supermarket and the guys at the office that are not your husband and everyone else? Just know, you'll probably be the first victim. You want to be like them? Don't worry about it. Don't make sure you're just like them. You're still worrying about going to baseball games and football games instead of Shuret Torah? No problem. They'll make you into a baseball. The enemy is ready. Anyone that's denying it is just simply denying reality. Amalek is ready. The Torah was given at the same parasha, same parasha, as this whole story, this story of Amalek. This, everything is connected. It's time for us to decide. Are we going to do what the Torah says, which is rely on Avinu Sheba Shemaim, or are we going to rely on ourselves and our money and our wisdom and our friends? The decision should be relatively easy. Why? You look at history. All the people that were very rich right before the Holocaust, money didn't really help them much. If anything, it hurt them. All the people that depended on their looks, money didn't, that looks didn't really help them much. In fact, it hurt them. All the people that depend on their intellect, that intellect didn't help them. In fact, it hurt them. Kochi ve'otzim yadi is the first reason why Hashem will punish you for thinking such a stupid thought. There's no such thing as your strength and your power and your with this. And you say, no, 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 I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do it for now. And when the war starts, I'll do, I'll, I'll do tshuva. You should know. Someone that says, I'm going to sin now and do tshuva later. Sin now, do tshuva later. What's the punishment? They don't allow you to do tshuva in Shemaim. Why? You think that Hashem is one of your buddies. And He's going to wait for you. No, I'm doing the basic minimum now. I'll just do more once the war starts. Oh yeah, so he gave you money now, but you're going to use it once the war starts? Instead of saving Jews today, you're going to save Jews once we don't need it? 
He gave you wisdom now, but you're not going to use it now. You're going to use it uh, then when there's no electricity. So you have books. You have nothing to do. You're going to read the books then because no, there's no electricity. You can't do cheshbon. You can't do such accounting. You can't play games. You can't play games. Serious. This wasn't supposed to be part of the shiur, but it's coming out. The reality is, Abutai, it's happening. I've been talking about end of days for a long time. It's happening. It's happening. When? Next week, next month, next year. I have no idea. I'm not a prophet. and not a fake prophet or a real prophet. Or the son of a prophet or related to a prophet. All I know is I know what I see. When you have terror cells, both from Esav and from Ishmael, everywhere... You have to go and see, okay, what does Hashem say about this? It says, en ela There's nothing to rely on other than avinu our Father in Heaven. That's it. So how can we rely on Him? Oh, we have to give Him a reason to rely on Him. What does it require? Tshuva. It requires to do tshuva. That's it.